All right. I do believe we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov, at LevPo on Twitter. Today we have coming back to us Turkey Tom, as well as his old friend Tom Turkey, which I dug out, and this is the shape that he's currently in. I'm never going to leave this thing alone. It's always going to be by my side forever and ever. And, of course, we have the great and powerful Emperor Levin. First time on Break the Rules. It is a great pleasure to have you here, buddy. I really appreciate you coming in. I have been a big admirer of both of you guys. You are some of the best documentarians on YouTube. I know Lemon came from the uh, YouTube Poop community originally and uh, Turkey Tom. I don't know what exact connection there is between the two of you as far as uh, as far as closeness goes. I know that you're both, like I said before, some of my favorite documentarians, but uh, let's just get started with this thing. So... Emperor Lemon, what drew you from the YouTube poops, well, probably with the copyright, but what drew you specifically to looking at all the people who you looked at, the people who have achieved great things in life, and uh, is this something that you want to do from now on? This is how uh, this is how the Emperor Lemon brand is going to be as this genius documentarian. Well, everyone, let me first say that it's great to be here. I appreciate Lev for having me on. And um, if I'm understanding the question correctly... So you're talking about the uh, current direction of the channel, basically. Yes. And followers of the channel will know there have been many distinct eras of the Emp Lemon lore, where I started at YouTube Poops, and then I went to making sort of rant videos complaining about YouTube. And now I'm in a place where I'm sort of making these uh, informative videos about niche topics. And of course, probably the most popular series on my channel right now is a series called Never Ever, which I really haven't uh, done much content actually discussing sort of my mindset with creating the series. But if I could sort of just give the thesis of the series, it would be sort of highlighting these um, sort of spectacular either people or events that I felt like are underappreciated. And... Um, when I first conceived of the series, I was coming from a point on YouTube where I had made pretty decent growth, uh, kind of taking the uh, sort of rant, complaining uh, video sort of genre, uh, but I wasn't really finding it super fulfilling. A lot of people on YouTube see great success. They see great, uh, a tremendous fan base, tremendous um, views and subscribers and revenue from just uh, simply complaining about stuff and saying that uh, like this movie sucks, this TV show sucks. And that this is, of course, not to denigrate people who do that. It's a perfectly legitimate means of making content. It just wasn't right for me back when um, I was sort of coming off of that. It, it just, after a point, it was sort of like each video, I f felt like I had to arbitrarily amp myself up and get myself upset over something just so I could have sort of the gumption to go through and create a compelling video. And it, it just wasn't sustainable on my end. So I decided to shift my attention instead of like, instead of like complaining about all these things that suck, uh, someone else can do that. I'm instead going to try to focus on highlighting these topics and subjects that are worthy of praise. They're worthy of 
being celebrated and perhaps uh, did not wind up so due to whatever, whatever circumstance. But I, I, I take satisfaction in taking these issues which have made a positive impact on my life and sort of uh, sharing them with a broader audience. One of my uh, favorites is probably, I don't know, I mean, it's very difficult to choose, but Hungry Box is uh, definitely up there because that is somebody who, in terms of the employment, you know, being somebody who had to have a real job, uh, you know, quote-unquote real job, as well as uh, doing uh, the um, these competitive games, and then just fully devoted himself to doing all of these uh, competitions. There is something about somebody like that who is stupidly hated just because he has a jiggly puff and doesn't exactly do things according to how they imagine uh, uh, Brawl Melee uh, should be. I, get, I called it Brawl Melee. God damn it. I already screwed up. What is the proper name for it? Super Smash Brothers Melee. There we go. Brawl came later. Anyway, what exactly do you look for when it comes to people of uh, that nature? Like, you had somebody like Hungrybox. You had, you know amazing racers what exactly is this person who would be like the perfect m lemon example that you have not uh, done yet okay well so what to address sort of the first part when it comes to selecting these topics um it usually comes from just things in my life that i enjoy that i, I consume on a regular basis i should probably preface this by saying that uh, sort of a big a big motivator for me making a lot of my videos is to sort of take these topics, many of which have been pre-established and seemingly figured out by people and approach them from this different way that sort of um, makes people ask questions. I, I think a good example of that was my Leafy is Here video where um, before that there was just this sort of this prevailing conception that iDubs came out with the content cop on Leafy, and that's what basically did him in. But then I actually went back and looked at these statistics and the views data, and it didn't quite add up. And I basically came up or presented this whole new theory that like YouTube sort of put the brakes on Leafy's channel in terms of like the algorithm. And it has said, I get comments saying that it aged very well based on what subsequently happened with um, Leafy trying to come back and YouTube basically deleting his whole thing. But when it comes to um, selecting topics and stuff like that, I do like to pick topics usually that have not been covered often on YouTube. If like too many YouTubers that I watch have covered it, and I tend to stay away with it, which sucks sometimes because a lot of my video topics, I come up with them like sometimes years ahead of when I actually get to execute them. And then in, maybe in the meantime, I'll have this idea and then someone else will make a video that's probably doing mm. like 60 to 70% of what I'm trying to accomplish. And I'm like, well, there's no point in really uh, pursuing this now because I, I, I take respect in um, kind of leaving people to have that sort of topic and them being like the definitive video on it. Um, Do you ever think there will be an end to content where at a certain point everything has already been talked about? Well, there's a lot of people making YouTube videos. There's more people making YouTube videos now than there have ever been. And of course, that 
winds up with a bunch of overlap. Um, from my perspective, to kind of try to stay fresh, I try to sort of look away from sort of just standard internet trends and go more towards uh, general topics that have perhaps been covered more in uh, literature, but not as much on the internet, either because uh, people haven't found it yet or because, uh, I don't know, it's just hasn't people haven't found a way to present it in an interesting way. But so that that's kind of how I select a lot of my topics now. It it has to have a little bit more sauce than just like, oh, this YouTuber did this and what does it mean? I try to craft these more sort of robust overarching themes, like combining multiple events that are sort of similar and um discussing how the uh, sort of totality of it matters well the overall theme right now seems to be people who have uh done amazing strides which differentiates them from uh other people and i want to touch on this a little bit later as we uh keep going as far as a certain uh a certain pet peeve that i have of uh what is going on today but as far as uh how do i even say this all right, you know what? I'm just going to talk about it right now. So you guys heard of World War One, right? Yes. No. No. Okay. Tom, what do you know about World War One? <laughs> no, I mean, I know, I know, like, what happened. Yeah. Yes. I have a rough idea of World War One. Sure. Yeah. So one way that I didn't really think of World War One before, but it is, I think, a very obvious one, is that you had a whole generation of some of the most talented people, like the greatest scientists, the greatest engineers, uh, doctors, whatever. You just crammed all of them into this conflict, one against the other, and just like an entire generation uh, perished. I guess that is why they called it the lost generation. And the reason why I bring that up is there was this sense in the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, that we were headed into progress, that every single year was better than the last one as far as what we were able to create, as far as the minds that ended up coming up with things that are beyond our comprehensions. And the reason why I bring that up is I think that your videos, even though the subjects, you know, are incredibly varied, whether it's like people who play video games or uh, NASCAR drivers, the thing that ties it all together is that it's like you're trying to suck in that same spirit that I think may be not as prevalent today amongst a lot of demoralized people like Tom, especially with things like Tom Dark. Like you are much more in looking at where people have screwed up, where people have gone wrong. The CD yeah, I have belly. a I have a much less intellectualized take on my approach to YouTube. I just you know. <laughs> I grew up watching commentary channels, and uh, well, right now YouTube won't let me bully people, so unfortunately I have to document them. But um, yeah, I mean, basically, I just I just like talking about like freaks. Yeah, it's my passion. So in a way, it's like the yin yang, Turkey Tom and M. Plemon. But M. Plemon, do you think that I am correct in my analysis here of uh, what exactly you're trying to uh, yearn for here? And do you also, I don't know, again, like how much you like uh, looking at history. I mean, you cover a bit of it in, in your um, episodes. But would you agree with my assessment here of World War I or of that general feeling? So I, I guess 
I guess the metaphor you're trying to go for is that this whole generation of people, they had all this potential and it was just never realized because of external factors. Um, I think a theme that I try to convey is um, sort of appreciating the uh, sort of serene rarity of greatness, where greatness is something that's incredibly compelling to everyone. We all strive for it, or at least we um, strive to recognize the people in our society who we consider great at whatever activity. And um, the, the reason it's so compelling is for the simple reason that it is so rare to be great. And um, there's my, my, probably my favorite movie ever is The Incredibles, where it talks about sort of how this idea of greatness is being watered down and redefining the nature of greatness so that everyone can be great, where by just simply, you must preserve the strength of the term by making it so that our definition of greatness only applies to people who are actually worthy. And um, it's very easy for people, I guess, like I said, maybe in like the type of stuff that Turkey Tom works on, it's very easy to just kind of laugh at mediocrity. It's simple. It makes us feel individually better because it's like, oh, we're at least not as bad as this person. Schadenfreude. Category. It's a lot more difficult to um, think about greatness because it makes us, it, it turns us into the mediocre ones. Um, but it will it's it's always going to be something that draws people in and create a conversation you can go on twitter at any time and there'll be sports fans debating whether lebron is greater than michael jordan or whether ronaldo is a better soccer player than messi um it it's fascinating but a lot of time, in a lot of places greatness is just hiding it's hiding away from the public view and um I always think it's a shame when there is someone who is just like provably great, but they've been kind of forgotten about. And um, I, I think a lot of uh, what I work on is trying to attempt to atone for how, in many cases, history has sort of abandoned these people where they really deserve a lot more recognition. Do you think most people today, though, would be offended by there not being as much mediocrity, where if you are putting them on the spot and showing them all these people who could do all these amazing things, is there, Adam Carolla made this point, like, is there something about that view of how much I have to go through to achieve this greatness that just ends up turning the majority of people today off because they know that they're not going to be able to get to that point? There's uh, there's a lot of records that have been set already, and many uh, many feel like they're unachievable, and so it's certainly discouraging for a lot of people. Obviously, that's that's the standard you're up against when you compare yourself to the greatest at whatever thing. And um, yeah, it's easy to get discouraged, but at the same time, recognizing the stories of these people can simultaneously be, be motivating because no one starts off as the best. 
most people on YouTube, well, I guess everyone on YouTube starts off at zero subscribers. And then whatever happens after that is the amount of work and effort you put into building the channel. But it's a metaphor that applies to everything. You know, every, every the fastest marathon runner in the world had to work to get to that point. And there's a lot of luck. There is a lot of just natural born genetics when it comes to a lot of things. But it's net. It, it's never a bad idea in my mind to strive for greatness, because even if you don't get there, which unfortunately for the vast majority of people, you won't just by the sheer definition of the term. But even if you set out there, you will end up in a place that was better than you where you were before. You will end up closer to the greatest than to the person that you were going in. And I feel like that is a good mantra to sort of live by and to sort of just plan your life around. How much do you think it's about pressure where the more pressure that a society has on it or not even society, just individuals, the more they're going to strive, not even out of wanting to improve themselves, but more at least at first out of necessity. And that if, for example, so many things are already built, if you could say we went to the moon, we have the internet, we have all these accomplishments, do you think that in a way makes us, as in you know, the collective society, less ambitious? Because we already have all the things that we really need. We can look at our phone and get anything we want to, which for a lot of people is going to be the lowest common denominator. Do you think that is kind of like a stunting of the growth? And uh, other than just preaching the good word like you're doing and showing examples of, you know, they learned hard and really great people, what can be done here? To well, ultimately, that's a personal decision that has to be made. And it comes out of someone's own discipline and their willingness to um, actually want to pursue more. And obviously, it's not for everyone. There's a lot of aspects of society that are just comfortable. Maybe not so much anymore in the last 10 years. I, I think I can get to that a little later. But there's it's hard to get certain people to strive to be better when a lot of people are simply content with being mediocre. It's just, it comes down to a personality type and there's nothing wrong with it. Not everyone can be great and not everyone is supposed to strive to be great. I but guess but everybody saying, still has to get to a certain baseline, right? Like if that baseline is not there, then I don't want to live in idiocracy. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Uh, Turkey Tom, have you seen that movie, Idiocracy? I have not. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, I can explain what it is uh, to Tom. So in Idiocracy, a lot of the uh, smart people stopped having kids because they were too focused on their careers, and all the stupid people kept having more and more kids, and eventually got to the point that only the stupid people were left, and you had this world where there was a lot of technology everywhere, but all the skyscrapers were falling down, everybody was uh, watching people get hit in the balls, and that movie... This movie uh, sounds happened. very prophetic, sounds like yes. it's about to happen in the United States in like well, it was made in, <laughs> It was made in 2006, and it was okay. directed by uh, Mike Judge. So the reason why I'm bringing all this up is, on one hand, Emperor Lemon is right. You know, we do have to 
individually start to get people to be inspired and do something, but that's still going to be a handful of people. And hopefully a lot of them are going to be the wonderful audience of Emperor Lemon. Please subscribe. And Turkey Tom, please subscribe. But beyond those two groups of people, we may be kind of screwed when it comes to the masses. So Evan, the mass has always been like kind of retarded, though. That's been that's been my impression of history. Like most people in general are just stupid. That's just how things are. But we no, I disagree because we did have a middle class at a certain point in the 20th century where people all of a sudden were exposed to, you know, higher end literature, things that were more in the mainstream weren't things that were, let's say, as low. So that makes me think that it is possible to lift. I mean, look at all these other countries where people have been living in a pretty bad state, intellectually speaking, for a long time. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, 20th century rolls around, the British Empire comes in, and now people have access to things they didn't before. Sure. So you're saying in the 20th century, maybe we had a, we had a glimpse at moving past it, but we're yeah, going exactly. back. We're going back. Yes, we are going back, baby. Yeah, um... I mean, that that is kind of like how I imagine it being. I imagine it being maybe some kind of neo-feudal environment where you have these technocrats that are in control of, let's say, certain villages, and then you have people who are just uh, kind of like the peasants of the old, but they're just using their smartphones uh, to uh, do c- certain tasks. I don't know. I don't know if that's a great future, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What do you think is coming it's up? It's interesting that you bring this up, Lev, because... I actually have a lot of video concepts for the pretty near future where I sort of talk about a big theme in it is sort of going to be we're in the downswing of America right now. Politicians will try to say it's not happening. Companies who want you to keep spending money at the same rates you have before will try to say it's not happening. But if you just simply look at a lot of the data and you don't even have to look at the data, the simple eye test of going out and seeing the general temperament of people in this country. It will tell you that we're on the downswing. You know, it happens to every great empire. No empire has been able to escape it. And in the U.S., that's where we are right now. And it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And a lot of people would prefer to stay delusional and say that, oh, everything's OK. We'll get back on track. And maybe... There's not a high probability, at least in my assessment, and we've been going downhill. People uh, talk about the downward spiral. We've been in it in the United States since probably the end of the 90s, if we're being totally realistic, as in the United States dominion on the world and ability to keep a healthy and happy population. People in this country are just not happy right now, and for good reason. Um, it's, uh, but I I feel like before we can actually start making progress on a lot of issues in the country right now, we have to acknowledge that we are on the downswing and a lot of these future videos I have planned, um, they're going to be talking about many of these issues that lead to discontentment in America, particularly, uh, issues of wealth status and the nature of work. Well, when it comes to perceiving this, how much do you think uh, your mom plays a role in that as far as her history? Uh, What I was able to look up was that uh, she came from Maoist China. 
and China's going in a very interesting direction right now. But uh, before that, I know this is kind of a uh, curveball in here, but I am curious because uh, I came from the USSR. I was born back when there was still the USSR, as a matter of fact, and my parents came from there as well. So did you get any kind of information from your mom as far as what that environment was like? And then we can look into the future after that. Well, she would always talk about growing up on a farm, basically. I think probably most people in China at that time were, and they dealt with lots of famine. Um, I think my mom's father, I never knew him. He died very, I think, many, many years before I was born. I think I was told that he was a railroad, railroad worker and uh, he had like complications with lung cancer just because of the poor air conditions. Um, there, a, a lot of places in the world, they are industrializing. They are where the United States was several, maybe like a century ago. That would be comparable up until around World War II. That's where a lot of places like China, Brazil, India, Mexico, I think that's where they are right now. Um, I think to look into the future of the U.S., you have to look no further than countries like Germany and Japan, where they have re they're a little bit farther along than we are in terms of their population demographics, where ours is just starting to pull downward, but theirs has been shrinking for probably 40 years now, and it's, ca it's caused huge economic stagnation in each of those countries. And um, the, the days of the baby boom generation coming in, spending their entire net worth and prospering from the single greatest economy in the history of humankind, that's over. The party as we know it is it's over. And I think there's going to be a big change coming where the whole idea of the American dream where you have a big uh, four-bedroom house, two stories, with two SUVs and a golden retriever, that is just out of the question. That is not achievable for uh, like 95% of people my age. And it's probably the prospects are even worse for people Tom's age. And um, yeah, believe me, it's uh, it's looking very bad for people going into college right now. Right. Uh, they now, are all now, now instead college. of owning a golden retriever, uh, your son is going to dress up as a golden retriever. Your new pet will be a Glock that you like cherish every night and just like think about offing yourself because you can't cope with the fact that the future is so unbelievably fucked. Yeah. All right. Well, no, yeah. this is OK. Listen. Listen, this is too much as far as uh, black pilling goes. I want to try and figure a way out of this. Not for everybody, but at least for the people who keep their ear to the ground. So Become a YouTuber. Become yeah, a become a YouTuber. YouTuber. Yes. Farm content about, about lol cows, okay? Post every single day. Post a 10-minute gameplay commentary video every single day. And within 10 years, your net worth will be over 10 million. This is the new um, McDonald's. This is yes. Listen, Except listen. Economically viable. People, now. this is actually real. Okay, I have all these people. Like, if I tell anyone IRL, which is very few people, because I don't interact with very few people for with very many people IRL. If 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 they like, uh, they're like shocked that I like do YouTube for a living, right? If, I'm I'm sure, Amp, if you've ever done this, when you meet people, you have this experience. And the yeah. first question they ask is, "How much money do you make?" This is always the question I get, which is fucking annoying, but. Um, that is the question I've had the experience of being asked. And I, I usually don't tell people, but I will say if you're look, if you need money right now, uh, things are only going to get 
harder on YouTube. If you want to make money, start a content farm. There are so many people making so much money from these like content farm channels on YouTube, and they are not hard to run. You need like three hours a day, uh, and if you do it consistently, like you like like you will succeed. Um, like Mr. Beast has a lot of sound advice on this on Joe Rogan, but it is it's it's actually like 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 YouTube is like a, a unique opportunity where all you need is a laptop and like a shitty fifty dollar microphone. And you can make Especially an unbelievable with, um, amount of money. It, it's it's super helpful, I think, for people in developing countries where the exchange rate can be very oh, yeah. favorable for you, depending on where you live. And even in um Canada, I think it's pretty good. I think uh, yeah. YMS talked about this at one point and how basically like his money is more valuable. I, I've recently had I've recently had to hire a lot of freelance work off of Fiverr, and uh, I've I've used a guy from Indonesia and a guy from Pakistan, and. I bet they're pretty cheap, right? If you look at the cost to live in those countries, like I, I recently started a new website and I paid like the a guy from Pakistan off Fiverr like four hundred something dollars to try to help me with the website, and that's like a great deal of money for them, and not to say it in a derogatory way, but like just simply based on exchange rates and the cost to live in that country, you can buy maybe like seven to eight times as much food with that money in Pakistan as you can in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't, uh, uh, you don't see technology playing any role in possibly alleviating some of the stressors that would have been on people in some kind of a depressive time centuries ago. Cause if we're talking about the downward spiral, I want to throw that in as a possible white pill. So you're asking if uh, has technology uh, generally made people's lives better? Generally, but also if we are going in a downward spiral, will there still be certain technological creature comforts that people even living down on their luck would be able to have that they would have only dreamed about earlier on? Like, is that is that going to be somewhat of a factor here? I mean. I don't know. It's it's hard to say. When when I was growing up as a kid, looking at all the science textbooks, there was like ideas was like, oh, we'd have like super advanced technology right now. But to be honest, other than I guess just like smartphones, have there been any really big innovations in like the last twenty years that have like significantly made the quality of life better and yeah. not? I don't think that most people use technology in like a constructive way as well. Like there is like, a, there's like a way to do it that's beneficial. And there's a way that like, I think probably rots your brain and turns you into like a zombie. Well, South Korea seems to be doing all right as far as their robotics go. Like that is an example, I think, of a place where it isn't so much about having a lot of kids for the next generation where they do anticipate there's going to be far less people. But then if there's far less people, but we have enough robots let's say to be able to do some of the things that people used to do in the past doesn't that problem take care of itself i'm just trying to be super optimistic here trying to throw everything at you guys and see what sticks uh, it's so it's a nature of a changing economy because that's what the technology is being used for it's being used for economic efficiency in labor in most cases where um i guess yeah going to mcdonald's now uh after compared to 10 years ago, there are way more automated cashiers going to Walmart. I think the Walmart nearest to where I live, they've almost entire, I think they have entirely switched to self-checkout and there's just like a few attendants they pay to help people if there's a yeah. problem. 
Well, there we go. I mean, that's something uh, cl- uh, as close to the Jetsons as you're going to get, right? Self-checkout. But if we, if we automate everything, like, what are all these people going to do with their time? I don't believe in the whole people are going to be all artists thing, all content creators. No. That's probably, no, that's probably not going to happen. I mean, more of them will. Right now, I mean, more people are doing that successfully probably than at any other point in history as far as, like, like music and, you know, YouTube stuff, but... I mean, what what is the general population going to do with their time once everything's automated and like they can't? They're going to put on like, the like, VR. They're going to put on the VR goggles and they're going to go into their uh, private harem and they're just going to coom all day. That's yeah. that's what's going to happen. Um, Exciting. This is actually this is part of what I'm going to be discussing. Some of these videos that are going to be coming on the channel later this year. We're more so now. Now we've shifted sort of to talking about the nature of work, and I've actually been reading quite a few books about this, um, particularly books talking about hunter-gatherer people. Um, Like there are many hunter-gatherer tribes that still exist in nature and are studied to get a better insight of how sort of we are supposed to be acting in a natural state. Like these people, they are basically the blueprint for human behavior. This is what like a thousand generations, a hundred thousand years of human evolution has placed us in in a natural state and out of most of the hunter-gatherer foraging tribes that have been observed people realistically only work like three to four hours a day and the nature of the work is not boring it's fun it's a social activity it's basically just either men going out to hunt and using just active strategy and tactics to hunt down prey or like men and women going to pick berries and try to just like a scavenger hunt for food. Like that is the nature of work for hunter gatherers. And that is what we have basically like our brain and our brain chemistry has been evolved to do. But uh, 10,000 years ago, sort of the, um, the rise of agriculture completely changed the nature of work on a human scale. And it all of a sudden became the, the whole MO shifted to just like grinding out as many hours as you can to build wealth and wealth is used as a utility to not have to do more work. And it's, it it has persisted like this in, I, I guess, capitalistic society where we are, it is a work dependent society. People, I think, I, I believe people in the 1920s looked at the current date now, 2020s, and thought like, wow, in the future, we're going to have all these great machines and robots and inventions and doodads to stop people from having to work so much. And there's gonna, there were concerns back then over people having too much leisure, I guess, which is what Tom was talking about. But the, the opposite is true. I don't know that I'm talking about too much leisure. I guess my question is just like, what will people do with their time in the absence of yeah. work? Like, right. And also what like kind what kind of leisure? And have all this free time. And yeah. that really hasn't materialized with the way the economy is working right now. And you hear it all the time in American society where if you simply work hard and pick yourself up by the bootstraps, then you too can have the big house with two SUVs and a golden retriever. And that's it's the wage stagnation has made it so that's simply not the case. There's like not enough hours to work at what a lot of current wages are 
at low skill jobs to where that's a, a, a feasible reality. And um, it's going to come to a front where we have to rethink the nature of work. I know that guy, like the dog walker, transgender person, <laughs> went on. They um, rock. They went on, Fox, they went on Fox News and representing anti-work, and they got a clown for that. But the uh, the um, the logic behind an anti-work movement is not faulty. There there are legitimate reasons relating specifically to how we kind of evolved to be why working as much as people do in a civilized society is just not healthy. And you see people with all these health problems, record obesity, record depression. It's because we are being forced, not literally, but out of sort of financial necessity. So many people are just being forced to dedicate so much of their waking hours to working a repetitive, boring job, where they just have to sit around and deal with customers in a completely that's that's true. But, but to throw in okay, to throw in a boomer statement here to counteract what you're saying, who's gonna pay for them if they're not gonna work? Well, that's um that's what we're gonna have to figure out economically. Like, we're gonna all right, to well, okay. Well, the, the here, here's the problem. Yeah. It it almost seems like I'm not saying you're proposing this, but it almost seems like one inevitability of a lot of people who are going to be talking more about this anti-work and we need to be provided for is going to be some kind of a communist dictatorship with which i mean your ancestors experienced in maoist china mine have experienced in the ussr i don't want that to be the route that people go on again because it almost seems like we're these goldfish where we just forget about whatever happened the previous generations and keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So I understand what you're saying, but is there some way that we can avoid taking it that particular direction? I think it's it more so not necessarily like sort of violent uprisings to just like manually redistribute wealth, which is what I believe many of these communist regimes were about. It, there has to be a philosophical change over the nature of like what it means to work because all these questions started coming up as soon as basically the average college degree stopped being worth the money every year since the 1970s, no matter if we're in a recession or inflation, no matter the economic conditions, the cost of tuition on average has risen by five or six, seven, eight percent every single year for the cost of a, the average bachelor degree today. You could get five bachelor's degrees in the 70s. So back then it was actually like legitimately feasible to like work a job at like Publix or whatever your local grocery store chain is. You could legitimately work at a grocery store, pay your way through college and then like buy a house at age 25 and then start earning equity. Not on the table anymore. Not at all feasible. I don't know what specific point it happened, but the cost of college has kept going up and the wages have remained relatively flat. And at some point, the cost of a degree made it so that on average, it's not in your favor to go to college, load up on six figures of student loan debt just to enter the workforce and basically just be an indentured servant out of financial necessity where it's like, oh man, I, I've got six figures of debt. I've got a Porsche worth of debt. 
in the back and now I have to work and I have to go to work, work every day. And if I don't have, if I get laid off for like one month, I'm in just complete financial ruin. So I better go to work, not ask for anything, not push the envelope and just keep my head down and keep working. And it's unfortunate. It's uh, I, I basically did everything people told me not to do by investing a lot of my time in YouTube. And it was not the money that made me do it. It was the agency of being able the just simply being able to say like, I don't feel like working today, so I'm not going to. And this is why some, something like a YouTuber and Twitch streamer is so appealing. It's not the money. People may say it's the money. People, the, the news always reports on big dollar amounts, uh, whatever these top 10 Twitch streamers are making. That sells headlines. But the true sauce of what draws people into this profession is the ability to set your own schedule and not have to worry about taking your foot off the gas for one second and then suddenly not being able to make your house payment for that month. That's uh, fair enough. I, like we said before, I don't think most people are going to be able to do that. The closest I would say is having jobs where it would be less the Japanese model where, for example, workers, as far as I heard, have to pretend to be asleep in the office just to show the boss how hard it is they work. The model would rather be, this is what needs to be done, and you can do that at your own time, at your own pace, however you want to. Because it, it seems like there's so much waste that goes on in the workplace. Like, I don't know, like, how much do people actually work as opposed right. to just watching cat videos all day? Or, you know, like, it's kind of like that thing from Office Space where the guy says that he only works as much, like, the bare minimum that he has to, which is, like, fifth, like if he could say, like, 15 hours per week, and that's it. Otherwise, he's just pretending to uh, be busy. Right. Like, I mean, that, I think, is a big factor thing. here. It's soul-sucking. Like, like, and this is... And unfortunately, a lot of people have never been taught any different because basically before the Internet, this was your only option. You, you'd either like work at McDonald's or you'd work at like a mechanics and do like hands on stuff and have a bit more flexibility. Or if you wanted to be a high earner, you had to get one of these cookie cutter white collar jobs where at one point um, upward mobility was possible and loyalty was rewarded, but that doesn't last, that, that didn't last long. And I, I think as early as the 70s or the 80s, you had a lot more of these companies focusing resources into human resources and middle management, where you, the worker, you no longer have autonomy over anything. You're just a peg. You're just a cog in the system. It doesn't matter if you work at company A or company B. You are no closer to actually having the reins over your own earning potential. You start at the salary, and for most people, they probably retire after 40 years making 20% more. It's just like barely even enough to match inflation. And you give all your you give all your loyalty to the company, and they tell you, oh, we're a family. Oh, if you put in the dues, then you'll be rewarded. And economically it's not in their favor to reward you for doing that so overwhelmingly that's not going to be the case for you you're just going to sit at a company or maybe you'll go to two or three companies in the line of work and your earning potential is never really going to be that much 
And that's fine in times of like economic boom, where you can at least rely on equities prices to go up. But I have a feeling we've reached a point where like equities prices and real estate might be toast. So you're basically just capped. That's another appealing thing about independent contractor online work, not even online, but just like starting your own business. Once you're on the other side of that, then your income becomes uncapped. But there, there is also another aspect of this, which I think people don't look at as uh, much as they should, which I think is the extended family. There was this American idea of having the nuclear family, like you talked about before, including the golden retriever. But by extended family, I mean grandmas, grandpas, uncles, cousins, like a whole bunch of people that can look after each other. And I think this was something that a lot of immigrants ended up bringing into the United States. But I noticed that with each subsequent generation, there seems to be a lot less of that. A lot more isolation is going on. I don't know if there's a lot of isolation in terms of like how, how you see the people around you. For example, the older generations and the younger generations, is there as much interaction going on today as far as role models that uh, young people can look up at? Well, well, what's interesting now is that, and I, I'm fairly certain, obviously I never lived through these older times, but I'm fairly certain this is the case. There has never been probably more disdain between the generations today uh, as there was at any other point in history. Generations used to generally get along. In fact, all, the elderly would be respected. And this is how it is in East Asian culture. Yes. But Zoomers generally do not like boomers and um, neither do millennials. And that's because this boomer generation, it, it, I mean, it's easy to complain about it, but let's face it. They were born into the greatest, most prosperous economic period in human history. One that may never happen again. Post-World War II America, where basically all the other superpowers on Earth had been leveled and had to spend a ton of money to re rebuild their infrastructure. Post-World War II America had access. They had the keys to the kingdom high wages, high standard of living, good, ample free time, ample time to just take a vacation, great buying power, ability to just buy up whatever equities in you, you want in this extraordinarily growing economy that was actually based on growing economic output rather than just rampant speculation. They had the keys to the kingdom, but the, um, the uh, system sort of balanced itself out because not only did they have access to the greatest amount of wealth of any generation in history, they also spent more wealth than any generation in history. And it's just the man on Madison Avenue, they were in hog heaven advertising to this group of people because you just sell them something and they'd all buy it. Imagine if raid shadow legends had been around <laughs> when the boomers were a kid, how good their fucking sales would be. Um, and it created this prevailing culture where not only is like spending and like consuming products considered like somehow a virtue, but like the amount of stuff you own, like defines your value as a person in this society. And the generation before them went through the great depression. They were thrifty and it was very common 
for people to just die and let the next generation inherit the wealth so that you'd at least have this little bit of a cushion. It's like, son, I saved up all this money and now that I'm on my deathbed, it's yours. Or I have this house that's going to be yours. And um, there's a book I'm planning to read about it, but I've heard a lot of people review and paraphrase the book. It it pertains to like the boomers kind of relationship with um, economics and the economy and how they chose to use their wealth. And they actually ended up being like one of the least generous generations on record in terms of actually passing on the wealth. Like it's a lot more common for like a dying boomer, like the sort of older end of the boomers now. They just like spend six figures on medical bills to sort of just arbitrarily extend their lives. For an extra- now you're quoting Sam Hyde, all right? Now you're quoting a Sam Hyde podcast. I, I see you there. I think right? Sam Hyde has talked about this, but this is true. Mm-hmm. When you look at the economics, the boomers are not as generous because I think they had been prevailingly taught by advertisements and by the overall culture at the time that there's no virtue in being charitable, giving away your money, helping the community. No. What matters is how how many square foot your house is, what your salary is. And Tom, you mentioned this, where like the first thing people ask is how much money you make. This is a thing that has now yeah. into the entire American culture where there's like no longer virtue in being an upstanding member of your community. There's no longer virtue in being charitable and using your resources to the benefit of the people around you. No, it's how much stuff do I have? And uh, when I drop dead of exhaustion from working to sustain it all, how much stuff am I going to have in my three-car garage next to my SUV? That is um, that is kind of how people are defined now. Do, I don't do blame see- boomers for that, though. Like, I'm not mad at them because, I mean, I mean, like you said, I mean, they were the first generation to grow up. Uh, I mean, basically, like they were, they were like when while religion was being phased out, consumerism was being phased in and i'm not i'm not saying religion is like necessarily what we need i'm I'm not religious in any way but i am saying that like that that kind of uh sense of community was passed up for a sense of like the mustang and whatever else you know the chevy uh yeah that the escalade and shit like that and it's like you know where i live i don't know where you're from and but i come from i guess i hate using this word it makes me cringe but I, I come from a pretty privileged background in terms of like where i'm from like i still live at home right now i will move out but i, I don't need to um i grew up like very like white middle class new england um upper middle class even i would say um and so i'm in kind of a unique position to talk about this because like i won't see a lot of the struggles that um you know a lot of our generation will i mean I, you know i went to school i didn't like it i was doing youtube at the time so i just dropped down and was like fuck it but um, I will say that, like, the reason I don't personally blame the boomers is because I see the content that, like, you know, kids my age consume, and it's all still about consumerism. I mean, there's ads everywhere. The way everything is paid for nowadays is ads. Uh, there's, yeah. like, a new water company I saw the other day, and, and like, they charge nothing. The the payment, like, like the way they make money is they have an ad on the bottle, um, and they hand out water for free. Um, and increasingly, I think we'll see that basically, like, our entire, like, worth as humans will be constituted by maybe not even physical wealth. It will be, uh, it will be like digital wealth, like uh, CSGO knives and uh, NFTs, board apes. Um, but ultimately our, our lives um, have become less about 
like uh, experiences and uh, art and like having, you know, fulfilling relationships with people. Because for the longest time, we've just been taught that the, you know, the thing that will make you happy, the thing that will make you feel good is that you got the Camaro or you got the, you got the Corvette, right? Or, right, or you worked a bunch for, uh, for, for the nice house. The problem uh, and, is that you know, these like I said, those things will be impossible. These things are ultimately unfulfilling. I get that there's like a billion TV specials saying like, oh yeah, you shouldn't buy the stuff, but it's like, no, they still buy the stuff anyway, and then they wonder why. I mean, they are fulfilling, but only if you have people to enjoy them with, you know, like, right. like well, yeah, a, 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 a new Mustang is, is an excellent car. OK, I'm not shitting on the Mustang. Buy I mean, the you Mustang. Can, you can okay? have nothing and still have access to a great community of people around you. And you'll be much happier right. than living high up in your ivory tower with your just giant pile of things that you bought with your but you're alone. incredible earning power that is now completely mm -hmm. extinguished for people my age and Tom's age. Yeah. Well, not only are you alone, but with virtual reality on the horizon, if enough people are going to be inside of that Metascape, then there's going to be even less interaction with the people that are going to be outside, the people that are going to be around you and your family and so on. So ultimately, I think it's almost like an Ouroboros. If you guys aren't familiar with that, that's the snake eating its own tail. At a certain point we get to the stage where we get to such a high level of egoism that the only thing that we can do from that point is to, at a certain point, start correcting that egoism. This is something like, uh, I don't know, like, I know, Turkey Tom, you said you are not religious, and Emperor no. Lemon, any religion, spirituality, anything of that sort in your He's life? He's vegan. Yeah. Well, that's one <laughs> thing. I mean, <laughs> that's the own church of, uh, of something, but no, I... I I don't generally um, practice religion. I well, have been I'm, looking more yeah. into uh, spirituality, at least in terms of reading and trying to understand it. Mm. But Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that there is a reason for this particular existence? Do you see this as complete randomness, or do you see things that are proceeding in our life as happening for a certain goal? Um, in terms of just like a general goal, like, a new world order or whatever. I don't really no, 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 like no, 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 not like that. I mean, goal as in a certain thing for humanity to reach for a certain understanding for us to have. That's what I mean by goal. I think, I think that just decades and decades of marketing have completely brainwashed people in, into the, um, the things that actually matter about being human. And like now there's, it's now at a point where like no one can agree on the direction of what civilization should go. So I don't know if you asked me, if I could be the whole dictator of everything and control how people lived, uh, I would make everyone a lot more thrifty for sure. Which of course is why I have such a hard time dealing with the prevailing culture where your wealth and status determines how people view you virtuously. But I don't know. How, everyone is. How would all, you make everybody thrifty? What would you do? I don't know. Um, get rid of uh, get rid of all the SUVs and dump them in the ocean or something. Yes. Never be used again. Everyone will drive a Toyota Camry forever. <laughs> yes. Mandated mandated uh, mandated Chevy and everyone, everyone would have to take the fucking bus. How about that? That would be better. That'll be better just to get shit on like like everyone. Like everyone like top down society. Like you gotta ride in the same place as like movie execs. 
That's right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, don't that's know. that that's a tough one as far as how you're going to fix society because all these things obviously they have their own problems. This uh, is my this is just yeah. my own crazy hedonistic like selfish way that I would have people live. But obviously, not everyone's about that. Well, the reason why I brought up spirituality to begin with is there's been this prevailing uh, thoughts within uh, the Kabbalah. Have you guys heard of the Kabbalah? Uh, not quite, no. So the Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism, and other various traditions have their own ways of uh, talking about the same thing. But the idea is that we are all an aspect of God, and by God, they don't mean like a bearded man in the sky, they mean oneness, that there is only one thing, and there is only one thing that's going on. You, me, everything that's currently here, this is all just like one thing. And the goal of a lot of these mystery traditions is to eventually get people to the point where they recognize that, where you could just walk around and understand that everything is going on is just one thing, and I am an aspect of this one thing, and that changes the way that you interact with people. And what it's supposed to reinforce is this act of giving as opposed to receiving, where you get much more satisfaction out of what you end up doing for other people as opposed to just fulfilling whatever base desires you have. So their idea is that humanity has to get to the point where there is so much egoism, where everything is constantly done for self-satisfaction, and only then, when we've just had enough of that, that is when we're going to start to correct ourselves. And According to the Kabbalists, we either correct ourselves through the easy way, where we understand and we start fixing it, or through the hard way, where we experience all kinds of cataclysms and various problems. And uh, as far as the amount of time that that goes on for, I mean, hell, that may go on for several generations or thousands well, you know, of years or whatever. Kind of like describing how things are right now. Exactly. It's pretty interesting. But that's, but that's kind of the point where these Kabbalists, I think they may have had... Um, they may have had some predictions here how exactly this organism, and by organism I mean the planet Earth, but also the entire universe, you know, all of existence, how all of existence functions, that it has to find some kind of a balance. And if things are off kilter, then it's going to rebalance itself in some other way. But mm. not just in terms of the environment, I think, also in terms of how we relate to each other. You know, that, that's yeah. very interesting because um, I've had a similar experience in recent years because I started reading the uh, the spiritual book, the Tao Te Ching, by uh, by Lao Tzu. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, obviously I started thinking it's like oh it's part of my heritage or whatever, where some Chinese guy or it's it's actually believed that several generations of independent people wrote it like mm. twenty six hundred years ago, and um, I don't know. There's something about it where they, they, I know it's a stereotype of like the old wise East Asian man, but like these people had wisdom back then. I just keep reading through these passages and like applying it to modern life. And it's like, they're right. They're right about a lot of the stuff. And I've never been super religious and I don't really view the book as a religious text, but it's very interesting how it's sort of just like this, 2600 year old document of knowledge from people back then and how universal a lot of it is um 
and obviously it's a uh, it, it's where like the um the philosophical concept of the taijitu comes from yin and yang but yes. there's, there's a huge uh motif in the book about balance and not just balance but more so you may find what you're looking for in where you're least expecting to look you know uh it's, it's full of like um it's full of like paradoxes and stuff like that where it is there's all these counterintuitive bits of knowledge where you wouldn't really think about it but once you do all of a sudden it becomes a lot clearer i don't know i i, I just I, I just feel like there was some sort of synchronicity in at least both of these old uh sort of spiritual texts that you referenced from i guess your heritage and the tao from mine i don't really they, think it's no much they definitely link up but there's there are certain there are certain doctrines of life back when human beings lived more simply where it seems like there's these parallel forms of reasoning where people are kind of figuring it out back then and we can figure it out again today because i know a lot of people deal with like depression and stuff and it, it is a product of the sort of hostility of the world we live in now where sort of individualism is key but individuals are not treated very well and well, you also notice depression has become a virtue in a way that is something that people uh and i'm not blaming them but this just seems to be the trend that a lot of young zoomers they're flaunting whatever mental condition they have and why, why do you think that is going on people just want to be Accepted. I want to be something. Well, I think I think part of it is like there's nothing interesting going on. I mean, we've conquered a lot of like like we're not going to war, you know. Kids, yes, kids we are. We're going to war against Russia. So well, that's, we're, we're in the that's we're back. in the we're in the culture war. But um, you know, no one my age is like you know. There, there's no one great struggle, one great thing we're working towards, and so all mm. we have is time to think about ourselves. Um, I think uh, I think introspection is good in limited doses, but I think that uh, endless introspection because you have nothing better to do. Uh, that you know does not fix a lot of things well there, you have to do do something with yourself there's another difference i think between the east and the west where emperor lemon i'm definitely a fan of uh have you ever heard of the I Ching? uh i'm not sure about that so that is also uh that is also part of uh taoism it mm -hmm. is a way to tell your not so much tell your fortune as much as get answers to questions where you take you can they use different methods for this but a common one is you take three coins uh, you know, with like the bird and the uh, tails and the head and the front, and you flip the coins. And every time you flip, uh, no, not flip, you can just like jiggle them around. So you jiggle around two coins, and it would either be like heads, heads, tails, 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 heads, or so on and so forth. No, I'm wrong. It's three coins. Never mind. You have to do it with three coins. And if you get like tails, 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 or tails, heads, tails, whatever, certain patterns end up coming up. And those patterns then correspond to this big chart, and it tells you a very detailed answer to your question, having to do with uh, the position of these uh, various uh, various um, results. And I've tried it multiple times. I've even tried it before I started doing Break the Rules as far as guidance to doing Break the Rules in the first place. And these things end up being bizarrely accurate. So I think that there is this system in place, but the big difference between East and West, I think, is that in the Eastern system, it was always about 
how do you maintain this balance in the world where everybody is in the exact right sphere that they have to be in and there's this kind of harmony? The difference, I think, between that and what's gone in the West is I think that there is a certain trajectory, at least according to this Western thought, that we are heading into. I mean, some people talk about there being, you know, in Christianity, there being this, uh, how do you say it, apocalypse, this time of everything being revealed, but even beyond Christianity, it's in Judaism, it's in Islam, basically it's in all these Abrahamic faiths, it's also in Zoroastrianism, which you could say is kind of like in between East and West, but still I'd say like the Western approach has been that we are heading into some kind of a trajectory, we're heading into some kind of a great awakening of some sort, like that's always been I think something in the back of people's minds, at least who are aware of it, or maybe even unaware, that's what was pushing them to go beyond just let's live in harmony with this kind of you know, and we're not even talking about uh, hunter gatherers we're talking about agriculture we're talking about people like we're talking about peasants who were you know maybe they didn't have the best teeth you know maybe they didn't have the best of health like somewhere if we're talking about asia uh, but they still maintain this you know like continuing on the cycle the cycle the cycle so that i think is the big difference and I don't know what you think about that aspect of the Western thought of this trajectory. Do you buy this idea that maybe there is something to ascending either through an easy path or a hard path, but still ascending, not really being stuck inside of this one continuous onward cycle forever and ever? Well, um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a super big expert in just religion and philosophy, but I have been reading this book. A lot of books I've been reading that are kind of like very black pilling, but in the same way, refreshing in terms of uh, kind of getting answers for kind of why so many parts of modern life just don't feel right. Um, and the book I'm referring to is called uh, Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan. And he has a, he has a passage in it where he sort of talks about the advent of certain religions as it came to the advent of agriculture because agriculture as it first came up in certain fertile parts of Eurasia um, it basically created wealth in terms of like the first time that human beings had like stuff worth guarding in which case it would be excess grain or excess crops from the harvest and with wealth we became an end to egalitarianism because hunter-gatherer tribes they've been observed and anthropologically they're thought to have been prevailingly egalitarian cultures where n no one is supposed to have more than anything else or more than anyone else but with agriculture there was a new norm where basically 95 percent of people would just be poor and they would work for the one guy who controlled all the stuff. And gradually over 10,000 years, it kind of developed into what our society is today. But um, in the book, Christopher Ryan basically said, or he was referencing other literature, anthropological studies, suggesting that a lot of religions and uh, or religion sort of, sort of shifted our, our relationship. Our relationship with nature shifted toward to being more antagonistic where natural resources instead of being considered like uh, thankful bounties they were now just stuff 
for the taking stuff to be exploited. And as our relationship with nature changed, the author argues that so did our relationship with the idea of God, where instead of basically a lot of these pre agrarian civilizations, they would worship a series of gods related animism, the forces of nature, like mother earth. Yeah. And they'd be like thankful for the berries or whatever they could find in nature. But once agriculture started, um, a lot of, I guess a lot of the Abrahamic religions shift to sort of like a singular, vengeful, all knowing, all powerful God and uh, sort of a list of rules codifying the um, the nature of property. And um, I think this was also a time where sort of uh, the nature of women in uh, egalitarian tribes was quite fair and quite equ equitable. And then once agriculture started, women basically became a means of producing more human capital. And uh, I think even in the Bible, there's uh, one of the commandments says like uh, do not covet uh, someone's wife or any other property where um, I guess kind of the, the nature of how we viewed na nature itself and each other changed with agriculture and sort of the end of egalitarianism to where uh, I think a lot of religion created during that time um, was a bit more uh, hostile towards mm. sort of the uh, the rights of the individual man. But here's the funny thing about everything you're saying right now. The contradiction where you would have somebody like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau who was saying word for word everything you're talking about right now as far as this uh, nobility of the people who lived in this kind of uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh, before the advent of agriculture. You know, I believe like it's called like the noble savage. That's kind of like the, the, the basic term. And you had inspired by a lot of his uh, writings as well as the writings of others you had these intellectuals and this was not a movement that was led by the masses this was a movement that was originally frothed up by the intellectual elite of the time in france you had the french revolution and you had some of the bloodiest conflict uh you know since uh, quite a while going on back then and then, obviously, you had the communist revolution afterwards in Russia and in China. You know, the um, all the uh, starvations and things of that nature ended up happening. So it is very interesting, though, how you have very noble goals. I'm not saying you in particular. I'm just saying in general, people who think about this stuff, they have very noble goals in mind. And they see the problems, which are very self-evident, that we're currently in. But every time a solution is attempted it ends up being like a hundred times worse than whatever it is that was uh, attempted to be prevented. So I'm curious what, what you think about that uh, contradiction. It, it's sort of like a Pandora's box situation where through, through all these communist revolutions where they have attempted to instill states which enforce these values, we're, we're sort of just in a Pandora's box situation where once the box was open, we can't really go back. I don't think <clears throat> we have to, in terms of any actual tangible change to going back, how I guess human beings were meant to live. It, it's going to come out of just small steps on a very individual 
scale because there's just there's now like nuclear weapons in play. You try to take over a country, well, now everyone's just going to get knocked into the Stone Age. And maybe one day that's what's going to end up happening. Uh, a lot of, I think, post-apocalyptic literature has foreseen something like this where eventually all the world governments and institutions and power, it gets too big and it ends up imploding and collapsing on itself. And people just get put back into a state where kind of uh, we're back at square one. But it's planet, not planet of the apes. You could say, you bad. idiots, you blew it up. Yeah. All sorts of uh, literature and authors envisioned a scenario like this but with the end of civilization it it might be a harsh question to ask because in a scenario like that yeah lots, lots of people would die in horrendous ways but there's a big question i'm asking myself recently and this is like part of the like the thesis of um civilized to death where like has the advent of civilization been a net gain for the overall well-being of humanity and we've of course been told our entire lives that like yes civilization is good progress is good we have all these medical advances and basically the thesis of the book that i've been reading is that yes we have all these solutions to problems now but a lot of these problems are simply only there because of the advent of civilization like plagues and most recently with covid but it's a long history of humanity and plagues really only came out of they, they really only came to exist because human beings were living in such close quarters with animals in um extremely squalid and unequal cities in uh in europe and asia and you can look at a bunch of problems today and see that it's not nature that caused the problem it's the own it's it's the progress of civilization itself which is creating all these huge complications for people that are unprecedented and we don't really have the evolutionary physiological tools to deal with so yes progress has brought us a lot of incredible innovation but are we any happier for just living in a lot of cities and situations that we do are we any happier for having a car when the whole purpose of that car is to commute you 30 minutes into work each day, burning gas, polluting the air, and making you waste a bunch of money, especially now that gas prices have gone completely berserk, where, as in pre-agrarian times, you would simply leave your tent or bunker or whatever and go out and forage for food and all this complexity and strife of modern times, it wouldn't even be a problem. I mean, a lot of hunter gatherers have been observed of being just incredibly happy and incredibly high spirits. And that's certainly not something you could say about a lot of people today. I'm not going to completely toss the boat over or whatever and say that like, yeah, I'm like the Unabomber now. We should yeah, go going full, full uh, level society and return everyone to pre-agrarian standards because that's just simply not realistic. Hmm. But there there should be questions, big questions that we have to ask ourselves, where is all this stuff in the modern world actually contributing to making our lives better? 
I can give you, uh, well, before I can give you a certain prescription for what could possibly happen here, Turkey Tom, do you agree with Emperor Lemon? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I agree there are, there are problems with our society. I agree that um, we're certainly moving in a way that's not conducive to our overall happiness and fulfillment. Um, I will say, I one thing I am thankful for about modern times is that um, if I wasn't a YouTuber right now, if we didn't have this amazing opportunity, I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing, and I certainly would probably not be making me uh, nearly as happy as you'd I am be right a, now. You'd be a turkey farmer. Well, I mean, that doesn't sound so bad, to be honest, being a turkey farmer. that There's probably a lot of uh, fulfillment that comes from that, but um, I assume in reality, if I wasn't doing this, I would still be in school uh, to be a journalist and then I'd be a journalist and spend Ooh. my life, uh, thinking about, uh, thinking about being happy, being a journalist. I'm sure, I'm sure that would go really well. So no, um, there's no happier I, I, job in the world than being a journalist. You, you made the wrong choice by going to YouTube. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing I am thankful for about the modern age, uh, with the internet, uh, I have someone who enjoys a wide array of media and art, um, whether it be uh, visual art or uh, in particular, I'd say music is a big one for me. I really like music. And many artists that I enjoy right now are people that uh, would never have been able to create, like in the, in the first place, create the art that they're creating. And secondly, they would never be, uh, have been able to share it um, had it not been for the advent of advertising and the Internet and this massive, uh, this massive corporate power structure that governs our lives. Um, it used to be, you know, uh, let's say like two generations ago, um, everyone knew uh, the same artist because there were only a few, you know, means of distribution for media. It was all on vinyl um, and then CDs, I guess. Um, but w what we've seen is that over time, um, because uh, the playing field has been sort of, it's not level, but it's a lot more even, I'd say, so to speak, than it was. Um, individual people have been able to make a living um, off of their art. And uh, there's, there's, there, it is true that there's less of like a common culture where it used to be like the Beatles, right? Everyone listened to the Beatles yeah. because, because they were just everywhere. Um, and that was the artist, you know, that was accessible. And, and, and now, I mean, if you get into any genre, I mean, there's, there's a seemingly endless pool of people um, who are doing it successfully for a living. Um, I mean, you know, obviously you have your, your superstars like Post Malone or The Weeknd, but um, in any genre, you also have a bunch of artists who, I mean, they're not making millions of dollars a year, um, but that's also not what they set out to do. They set out to create art and share it with an audience who appreciates it and connects with it. Um, and they do that successfully and they manage to tour and, and you know, they sell out venues um, and they make a, a living for themselves and their families just through that. And I think that's a really cool and um, dare I say, beautiful thing about the Internet. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just yeah. how easy it is to share media now is that so many people are able to share their vision and share their, you know, interpretation of the world, um, whether it be through YouTube or whether it be through, um, you know, through, through music or, or, or whatever else I'm drawing. I think that's a really great part of our modern culture. And I, I certainly would not want to trade that, um, for almost anything, but obviously there are, there are problems that, that we're seeing right now. Yeah. It's somewhat arrogant to ask that question. Now, especially someone like me, who's well, well, it's not it's not so like uh, it is easy to get black pill, I guess. Like I get it, like I right. totally understand it. But at the same time, like my life personally, not just because of like what I'm able to do on a daily basis. I mean, um, you know, there are people I'm sure you've seen Emp um, and Lev, you've seen them too, who constantly complain about content creation uh, when it's their job. And it's like uh, I understand like there are hardships that can come with it if you, especially if you treat it, you know, the way that some people do. Um, but overall, I mean, being a content creator on YouTube, I think, is probably about the best job you could have right now. You know what's really interesting, though? It's like I get the sense that the psychology of creating content online 
it's sort of like a brief return back to egalitarianism, back to the way like people lived all that time, although it's in a completely uh, alien. How do you mean? Now. Yeah. But there's always a big MacGuffin on YouTube where people talk about the algorithm. I think the algorithm is one of like the best things to come out of YouTube possibly ever. And people complain about it all the time. And I had times where I complained about it, but I wasn't complaining about the actual machine learning mechanism behind it. I was complaining about the human interference where all these bureaucrats would come in and try to right. snooker something that was fairly and rightfully getting viewed by people who wanted to see it. And based on the prevailing cultural blob of whatever the Silicon Valley overlords are concerned with for the month, stuff just gets shut down and broken. And that's the part I heavily disliked. And that's the modern society part of it. But the algorithm itself, it... it, it in theory, it, it just caters content to like whatever you're interested in. It, and, it's, it, and it's fair. It gives content to people who want to see it. And that is like fairer to me than any of these human moderators or whoever or whatever people want to cater or shape culture to. The algorithm, it might not be nice to you on certain days, but it's fair. And that's something that can't be said. If you if you, if you make good content, it will be seen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 a frustrating thing some pe some people have a tendency to blame you know, the algorithm, uh, you know, this, this boogeyman when their video does poorly and there are, there, that can't happen. YouTube will throttle specific videos, but overwhelmingly, I think that if you're making content online, it's success is dependent on your ability to, you know, market it to an audience of people. I mean, and that's a, that's a great thing. When, when I go back to our predecessor television, the television industry, you see at least coming out now, just how toxic a lot of these systems were with the position what you had to do basically to put yourself in a position to succeed. You literally, you literally had to suck a dick to like succeed. <laughs> you literally yeah. had to suck dick yeah. to get anywhere. And I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that is nowhere near that difficult on YouTube. Of course I've had my problems with YouTube. I've had my run-ins with YouTube enforcement and I've gotten a lot of bad breaks, but I would still prefer this over, I don't know, being, creative and wanting to work with video 40 years ago and like realistically what options did you have before the internet other than just yeah pigeonholing yourself into whatever trendy thing was happening at the time on just a society-wide scale mm -hmm. but I think there's like a golden age of film or something and like sort of the auteur era era of film i'm sure kino corner would be have to talk about it in the future shout out to kino corner he was on break the rules as well but then uh all that came to an end the film industry the music industry the tv industry like by the 90s like right before if the internet didn't come out god it would have been just the absolute death of art as we know it like holy shit like imagine every single artist being the chain smokers and imagine dragons imagine that dragons that let's go i mean you're kind of seeing that with blockbuster films right now thankfully people oh, can yeah. still get the funds together together to make good independent films but it all just converges into just this big blob of homogeneity where it's like oh dude i i look at the i look at the fucking movies nearby me sometimes and i'm like i don't want to watch any of these like all these are yeah. so fucking lame just straight off the bat mm. and that's what everything would have been if the internet didn't come out and didn't offer this 
fair playing field for people to come in and not have to suck Harvey Weinstein's cock if you want a basic role in a movie. Mm. It's disappointing. Fair, I mean, right now, you, you get 100 Weinstein. Iron Mans and one Morbius. Yes. And, and on the internet, it's all Morbius. But okay. to be fair to Harvey Weinstein, though, he was responsible for the green lighting of some of the greatest movies in the 90s and uh, early 2000s. You know, Miramax, things of that nature. I think that uh, despite all his problems, there was still something to that level of authorship. Would you say that right now on YouTube, it is possible for people to get an audience uh, by doing something that, let's say, would have been done either back then via Harvey Weinstein or for talking about like the 70s movies like Taxi Driver and so on and so forth, like this high level movie making that's uh, of a high level, not budget wise, but intellectually. Is that something that is possible for, uh, for it to exist on YouTube or has the ship sailed as far as that kind of content? And now it's a lot more of a reaction uh, based things. You know, there, there's a lot of talk, and I've been hearing this for years now, where there's a, there's a question people are asking, where is it too late now to get into YouTube? Like, has that ship sailed? And um, I still think anyone can pretty much just make a channel and your stuff is good enough. If you have the talent, you will find numbers on YouTube as long as you don't piss off the wrong people. When it's I too late, you'll know it because there will be nothing good on YouTube. As long as there is, you can still you can still do it. No, the but to be, to be clear of what I'm saying, though, I'm not saying that you can't get into YouTube. What I'm specifically asking about is whether the kind of content, whether it be like uh, M. Lemon, you brought up uh, animation as being something that existed on YouTube. There was a heyday of animation, and then the algorithm changed, and now it's not profitable to do animation anymore. So just like that, I would bring in things like uh, the whatever the equivalent of a Goodfellas or a taxi driver would be today. Would that be something that would be able to naturally grow from YouTube? Or is the algorithm geared specifically towards things that are not going to be as, well, Kino, since we mentioned Kino Corner, I guess that would be the word. Well, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, are blackpilled when they come to approaching content on YouTube where they think it's like, oh yeah, I go on the trending page and it's all just a bunch of crap. It's all just a bunch of mainstream drivel intended for a lowest common denominator. But I've always made a point to say, and I mean, hell, you can use a lot of my stuff as an example where if you try and you have like soul behind your stuff on YouTube, it will stand out out of a simple aspect that there's not a lot of it. I mean, every, if everyone's doing the same thing on YouTube, talking about whatever girl on Dr. Phil being weird, you can counter-program it and you can make interesting, insightful videos. And it might take a while, but eventually you will get the recognition you deserve for the simple reason that people want to watch it. People are engaged with good, high-quality content and the algorithm takes note of that. It's not as unfair as a lot of people make it out. The algorithm keeps track of videos that people are engaged with, and they will recommend it to more people. And if you make it good and you make it engaging, it, you're not going to grow as fast as someone who just talks about Dr. Phil or whatever, but you will grow eventually. And It's just, it's just like with music charts, right? Like top 40 has always been cancer, much like mm. the trending tab. But, you know, you, you delve a little beyond that and you'll find like yeah. genuinely interesting stuff.
Well, again, though, if we're talking about 60s and we're talking about Beatles and Rolling Stones and so on and so forth, you would say that that was the uh, peak back then, yet that was also something that was incredibly popular. So in that sense, maybe I would be on the side of the people that would say that the taste of a lot of people has gone downhill in terms of the masses. But that, but that being said, M. Plum and I agree with you, but there should still be some kind of a roadmap perhaps to keep in mind so for example i think a lot of people could be wrong but i think a lot of people may have found your videos and uh, tom's videos based on something that they already knew it doesn't mean that it has to be like dr phil bullshit but for example things having to do with the simpsons uh, for example like the frank grimes episode or something having to do with some figure or some person that other people kind of know about like oh i know what this is it's very different than let's say doing an independent movie even if it's a great movie there's not really going to be any kind of connection why would it show up in the recommended bar in the first place like how would the algorithm even well, I think I think the yeah. thing about independent film and stuff like that is like you will have to get creative with it. I mean, you know, let's say let's say uh, let's go back to the music example. If you're marketing music on YouTube, um, it can be hard to, to succeed just by the algorithm. Right. Because most music on YouTube is stuff someone heard somewhere else that they'll then go to specifically search out. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you put an independent film on YouTube and use that as a like video hosting platform and then use like online marketing to you know get it out there uh, by whatever means, I mean, um, there are ways to make independent art succeed. There are podcasts right now that uh, advertise on YouTube and then they have a Patreon, which is where they make the real money. You know, some of the biggest podcasts in the world, like, like let's say come town, for example, I think they're making like a hundred grand a month or something on Patreon. Um, and not, and not, and like, you know, none of the money they make is from ads. It's all from people specifically funding it. So I think what you're finding online is that if, if people enjoy a kind of content, they will seek it out and they will pay for it. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, fu the future of independent film. Um, well, with yeah. Come Town, they're making a lot of jokes and they're talking about interesting things and they talk about it in, in an interesting way. Uh, right. Same thing with Tim Dillon. But so far, I know Tim Dillon has been talking about making some kind of a comedy film, but a lot of that stuff seems to be on the back burner. It seems like a lot more people who tune into podcasts, they just like to listen to the podcasts as if they're listening to a conversation that their friends are having and laughing along with them. Like that's Well, it, it, it is yeah. a different kind of content, no doubt. I mean, I think that, you know, podcasts in their own right, as much as I like them, I think there's a certain brain rot that comes with that because it's like this just, just parasocial bond you get. It's like the easiest content to consume ever. But, but the, the nature of content has changed, I feel. Yeah. Where it's, it's hard to get someone now to pay attention to a movie. Unless it's like full of pre-existing characters true. that have built-in storylines that everyone knows, yeah. which is why almost every big-budget movie you say you see today is a reboot or continuation of an existing franchise. There are very little big-budget movies now that aren't made off of an existing character because it's just the nature of attention has changed. Where so many people they won't even sit through like a thirty-second-long TikTok video. And how are, we, how are we expecting all these people to sit through an hour and a half movie? It's going to be a niche. There's always going to be an audience of Kino enjoyers. I know Kino Corner has made his entire career off of that. But there's not going to be like a time anymore where something like Jaws comes out and like everybody in America has like seen it over yeah. that summer. That's just not going to be the case. I mean, I guess re recently an original IP that has been somewhat successful was um, everything everywhere all at once. And 
I still don't think like what percentage of probably American adults have actually went out and see it. Maybe like 10, 15%. Maybe if that, it's, that, it's that'd just, be high. Different standards of attention today to where certain genres like film, where it requires this much of a time commitment from the viewer while also not being free. Like many of my videos are on YouTube. It, it, it's a tough ask now and, mm -hmm. and certain, uh, certain artistic mediums are, not going to be as lucrative because of that i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing though like um some of my favorite you know some of my favorite music i've, I've made it clear on my twitter and youtube or whatever you can tell from my video it's not hard to tell i enjoy rock and metal a lot and it's there's no secret that those genres have not been uh, really in the mainstream as much in the past maybe 20 mm -hmm. years um but despite that some of the some of the i'd say best um from those genres has also come out in the last 10 15 years in terms of um technical ability in terms of songwriting um, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how impressive what they're doing is, and they still make money. I mean, they still make enough to, to be alive and I'd, I'd not argue that the people who enjoy it, um, while it is, it is lesser, those that do enjoy it specifically seek it out. So they're a lot more yeah. loyal. There's still um, a ton of good art. There's still a ton of good exactly. art out there, exactly. but it's just, I don't think, I think we're at a point where good art is not going to be enjoyed as a, a massive a scale. Where no. like, yeah, in the 60s, you had very good, very talented musicians hitting the top of the charts. It's It just seems like it's mutually exclusive events now where the mainstream stuff is just going to be whatever. And the people who don't really have refined cultural tastes are going to watch it. And then the truly like good stuff with soul, it's going to be appreciated by but by not nearly as many mm -hmm. people. Would but I think that's okay. Like I'm, I'm content with that. I guess. Well, I'm, I'm content, content with that too. Stuff. Other than, other than being a content creator, where I would want people to start paying attention when I make another animated movie, let's say. So, would the roadmap for that be concentrate on things that people can relate to initially, like just in terms of discoverability? They have to find something that they already know exists, and from there cultivate people who have the same taste as far as the things you're interested in but make sure that those things are being given to them so they discover you and afterwards be able to introduce more original things or things more off the beaten path would you say that's that would be the right strategy well i think now uh making content online it's hard to approach things super goal oriented because just the nature of how traffic works online it's very chaotic. There's certain things where you work really hard on something and it doesn't do well. Like recently, my home movies video did not get hardly any views compared to, I guess, what my average is nowadays. And that's just going to happen sometimes. And sometimes you're going to get a very big break. The, the one before the home movies video, the Mount Everest video, that got a ton of views. And I, I had like no way of actually accurately predicting these. And I, I think it's not really foolish, but it's I don't think it's tactically efficient to just be like, yes, in one year I'm going to be here and my account's going to be getting this many views. It's just there's too much chaos involved. You, you kind of have to change your decision making to where it's like, OK, I have these pieces in place now and I know that X, Y and Z video did well where ABC video did not. And I might want, it might be in my interest now to pursue this topic over that topic, but 
in, in terms of, I guess this is the type of mentality you'd have with older forms of media where it's like, oh, I'm on TV. I have this budget. I can feasibly do this much stuff and hire this many people to work on it. And it's going to probably come out looking something like this. This is not something that happens on YouTube. I ha I like never plan more than like two videos ahead in terms of just what topics I'm going to cover simply because stuff changes. It changes real fast online. And um, there are opportunities, yes, but you have to kind of just take what you're given and sort of allow the trajectory of your career to shape itself rather than um, just picking an endpoint and then just sprinting off towards it. Because yeah, it's all about optimization, really. I mean, um, it used to be that I'm sure, uh, like, you know, let's say 20 years ago, if we were making videos, Emp, uh, the, the the idea was like, okay, you make a movie and you work on it for three years. And at the end of that, you, you release the movie and it's a big payoff. And that kind of thing for most people is just not a reality. Uh, what it is, is you are consistently putting out like, you know, art or videos or whatever, or music to contribute to a body of work and grow like an audience, because that's what it is about, right? It's about growing yeah. an audience. Um, it used to be, you know, uh, every three years you release an album, right? Now, uh, most mainstream artists, they will release albums, but for the most part, a lot of their attention that they're getting is coming from singles. Um, a lot of uh, artists like, for example, an artist I like falling in reverse. Um, he has released a lot of hit singles, um, but he doesn't put out that many albums anymore. And the reason is because people's attention span is so short. It's a lot more uh, constructive for your own career and getting attention to put out a single song uh, that will capture people's attention in the moment rather than spending three years working on one masterpiece that may or may not do well. It's just too much of a gamble. And that's just the world and it can be in. discouraging, you know. Like I've worked really hard on certain projects that in the time of my development, there were like some things that was like the hardest I'd ever worked and it doesn't do as good view wise. Or meanwhile, this the next video I'd work on, I wouldn't take seriously at all and it'll get boom, like a million views. And it can feel like at times that, oh yeah, like the system doesn't reward hard work. But I don't know. So, at the end of the day, it I think works, it's about it working smarter, you know, so yeah. it's really about uh, doing doing better with what you have rather than necessarily putting more time into something because mm. right. you know, well, sometimes conditions like a, will just shape things that way. It's like a, a Taoist thing in the way what Emperor Lemon just said right now, where he expected one thing to do better, but then this thing that was just like this casual uh, video ended up achieving so much greatness. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it, It's interesting to think about this, but... As far as original videos go, here I think is the big question for all the people, myself included, who want to do original content. You know, like come up with an idea, come up with the characters, come up with an original story and create that. That seems to be way harder to do today. And there are people who do that. Like, for example, my friend Patrick Smith, who is an amazing animator, he does videos that get, uh, I know Tom Feist sends you some of his stuff, but he just gets tremendous amounts of views, like millions and millions of views on his videos. Somehow he was able to, well, he creates amazing content, but also he was able to figure out how to spread it around. But for most people, making original content it's very different than, and again, both of you guys make tremendous work, but your work is more documentary focused. You know, you make a documentary about. So you're talking about like, you're talking about yeah. like, like work that is its own thing rather than. Yeah. And the work that's its own media. thing. 
it's not something that you would find in the recommended bar for topics that people know about. So even for Mount Everest, you would find a lot of mountaineering enthusiasts that will come up to your video or the people who would have originally discovered you from The Simpsons or from, uh, you know, even home movies. Like that would be the way that some people who don't know of you already would discover you. So my question is for the people who just want to make like, if we had, like, a Scorsese making Taxi Driver today, I keep using that reference, but if we had somebody like that, then what would be the way for him to be able to make sure that the most people end up seeing his work? That's well, there's there's no surefire solution, I guess. I just want to – I'll be quick, Emp, um, and you can go. But um, I guess, you know, it used to be uh, for, for, for any kind of media, let's say music – um, the way people would find out about it was often through secondary sources like, say, TRL or MTV, right? Um, you know, people would go uh, on, on TV and then they'd see music and then they'd go out and buy the CD as a result because they liked what they heard. And I think that um, there's more music and, and art than ever online. And ultimately, part of the role that people like M. Lemon will take is, I mean, like he said himself, he likes to share things that he enjoys with his audience or stories that he enjoys with his audience undoubtedly some portion of his audience will go seek out that media and become fans, fans themselves. And so I think that's kind of the role that people like him will take where you're talking about media. Um, and even, you know, as someone who is critical of, let's say, uh, there are some reaction YouTubers or Twitch streamers, you know, I may not be the fondest of, but part of their role is in sharing things with their audience as like culture uh, curators, I guess. And so I think that's going to be a big way that people are finding uh, content now. It's going to be from personalities online so let's say you make an original piece of art you make an original work uh it may not get the most attention uh, initially but it can you know develop a cult following online by being shared if it's good um and i think you know maybe that's not the answer you're looking for but i think that is a way forward i think more like in terms of uh the dimension of the question being like if you had like a sort of a mid-budget mid to low budget film that's obviously like something that's way too big of an investment for YouTube, but it's probably not going to get that much traction like the studio system. I guess now you'd have avenues like Netflix or Amazon Prime or HBO, some sort of streaming service. They're always looking for content. That would probably probably be the best avenue if you had something like that requires a lot of effort, like months and months. That's probably a little bit too... Daunting for. I, I wouldn't uh, even go that far. I would say you're right about the taxi driver. That would be more around what you said right now. Where I would say people who are interested in telling original stories could uh, look at would be more around like cheaper animation. But again, the algorithm may not reward that anymore, which is why I'm thinking like, is that route even that viable? Like, well, would it, yeah. well actually, this past year, you've seen great success with Smiling Friends. Where yes. they they didn't come, or the the creator Zach, and um, I guess Oni Oni used to be he, he's part of the show, but I don't think he was part of the development as much. But like, yeah, Zach and Michael Cusack they came from the Newgrounds school of animation as opposed to traditional parts of animation, where there was always this prevailing idea that animation would be super expensive, and they ended up making that show, which was a good competent product for television and they ended up making it very under budget compared to how a lot of these other animated programs yeah. work and so for stuff like that there, there's sort of like a thriftiness that's learned from 
coming up the ranks on YouTube and not starting off with just like, I guess, institutional film investors. It's, it's a different mentality where you have to basically use the tools at your disposal. Um, I, I, I always recall there was stuff like uh, there's services like College Humor, which were very big coming up on YouTube in the 2010s. And they tried to branch off into like their own thing, their own content business with all these different writers and a whole company structure. And it's just too expensive. The, like the nature of online content, the profitability does not come from the revenue. It comes from the it comes from the ability to have access to that revenue while having just complete skeleton crew basically uh, working on projects. Like you gotta be scrappy if you wanna succeed in terms of this revenue model. It doesn't work hardly as well if you have a whole team of people that all have to be on payroll. Mm-hmm. You have you have the like the the benefit of making content on YouTube and Twitch is that you can do it for low expense, at least relatively low compared to what the budgets they're used to working with on television, where you got all these labor employees with unions and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of efficiency that comes out of making it for the web. There's, there's some quote about that, about what is it? It's like, like creativity within limitation is usually like better yeah. than like having endless supplies, basically. And that, that tends to be true. I mean, oh. it basically takes nothing to become successful. I think the Japanese do it in a similar way too with anime, where they would have certain money shot scenes, which will be you know very intense. But other times, when mm. there's no need for it, they would just have a face with the lip sync and everything is still, and that's it. So yeah, people in animation. I come from an animation background. They figured out ways of making something look really good, but uh, being done cheap. But even there, though, you have Adult Swim, which is a big network. Who knows if it's going to be around now with uh, this the Discovery merger, but. But anyway, you have a network that picked up Smiling Friends, and that's how I think they were able to make good on that. But as far as doing something like that on YouTube, there's a reason why the Newgrounds people are not doing animation. There's a reason why Ego Raptor, Aaron Hansen, made Game Grumps as opposed to continuing on the animations. Even though back then, there were a lot of the guest grumps that uh, enabled a lot of animators to get ahead because uh, luckily for them, they had this big channel that can churn out all of this very fun video game watching content and they could just make fan animations and get uh, loads of views for that. But that doesn't seem to be around as much anymore. I mean, I think Guest Grumps is still there. I haven't really checked the channel out in a while. But do you see what I'm talking about? Like as far as YouTube, like no networks, as far as just like going fully independent cheap animation what does the forecast look like for that well i think uh it's actually quite good well we'll we'll see uh we'll see what happens with this uh, upcoming recession that we're likely going in but ad rates have been consistently rising over the last few years it's making it more and more profitable especially for us for smaller channels now um and that's that's a good thing when i started out um, I, I first got monetization on my channel back in 2015, and it was a completely different playing field back then. Um, where back then, there's basically an expectation that you had to work for free for years, which obviously, if you're starting off and you're an adult and you have um, 
payments and obligations like that when I was still a kid in school living with my parents. So I didn't have to worry about that. And that allowed me to work for free. But obviously it's not, uh, it's not really realistic to sink in all these hours working for free. But um, it's easier to get monetization now, I'd say, than it was back then. For, for a moment in between, it became super easy, but then it started getting abused like crazy. So they had to crack in and set up some actual standards. Copy. I actually have a question for you, Emp. What were what were uh, ad rates like back then, um, in comparison to now? Like, because we're always told like 2015 and 16 was like the the golden age of monetization. Was it? Were they were they like the same as now? Or um, I couldn't really speak from experience back then because back then, pretty much all my videos were like copyright claimed due to the oh, nature yeah. okay. of YouTube poops. The few I was that did get monetized, I remember it being. Like looking at the views, I, I I don't think I can recall the specific numbers, but looking at the views and how much I was making from just the few videos that were monetized, it seemed like, wow, that's uh, it's like better than I expected. But then I, I remember like at the tail end, like it was either like January 2017 or December 2016, I had my first $1,000 month on YouTube. And I was like, right. wow, this could actually be a thing. And then... Um, Jack Nikas wrote an article for the New York Times saying that YouTube was running ads on racist videos, and my uh, revenue went from a thousand dollars to ninety. Downward and, spiral. Uh, it, it took a little. It took a little bit after that. I've I've never been a particularly big earner on YouTube, which may surprise many people because my videos do get quite good views comparatively to others. But I simply do not have the volume of videos to like create this huge wall of ad clicks like i i tend to get like out earned on youtube by people with like uh like one sixth of my audience but you know it's not about the money it's about <laughs> sending a message that's i've a seen a lot of animation on youtube do well recently actually lev um uh, meat canyon that's one of yeah. the people that comes to mind <laughs> i was gonna mention that specifically system going on where I, he can be very expedient with animations which was always the drawback but I, I got to talk to him um, uh, earlier this month for, at the Creator Clash, and he um, yeah he has this team of animators now where basically the videos get a lot of views, create a lot of ad revenue, and then it goes to just paying the workers to come out with it faster. And I'm pretty sure it, it's like the same thing with Smiling Friends, where he he's gotten the thrifty, time efficient techniques down where it's like what to focus on and what to dedicate this time to where the animations still look quite good but there's definitely um a lot that has been saved in terms of times mm. time and money and making it more financially feasible even when uh even when animation was on like the sort of uh you know downturn you know you have that jurassic park quote about life finding a way um like four or five years ago you had um you know the story time animator people. I'm sure you you know the odd ones yeah. out. I'm sure, and that was a huge that was like a huge window for them to come into because you had all right. these like it, it's just like a big thing in culture where especially like uh, early teenage people. That's like a big phase that a lot of uh, young people go through. But yeah. that the output of animation simply wasn't there. Like I think after they made the algorithm change in 2012, it created a big vacuum, and those story time guys who could just make animated story time videos with not really like fluid animation, but changing of the poses. It was compelling enough for a lot of the viewers 
and it filled that void to where and it, it does suck for like those other guys who got fucked but at the same yeah. time like that the, the story time animators never would have existed if not for that like you know gap mm. um also pencilmation i think that one also comes to mind as far as uh, uh very uh, simple animations being done just a lot of them being churned out and airwave over here in the chat says story time animators like one uh like odd one out have teams too so yeah i mean this does seem to be kind of a white pill because they're seems to be more of an emphasis on animation than I may have realized with the algorithm. Is it purely due to the algorithm? Because at least I thought that the algorithm made animation go way down and it's never really changed itself. Well, I think it, it made kinds of animation go down, right? Because like you had people pouring like months and months into one thing yeah. and that was like their revenue. But the now big... it's like people find their, found their way around it. 2012 was the big change where YouTube shift shifted to watch time as the primary favoring factor but that was so long ago now um and the algorithm's always changing just a little bit like for instance I mean, there, there's a period in 2017 2018 when i was getting quite annoyed where it seemed like youtube would not recommend any videos like shorter than 20 minutes and it was just like dude come on but then um tiktok came along and basically took a huge chunk of market share of viewers away from YouTube and saying that like, oh yeah, it looks like people actually do want to watch short videos again. And YouTube has changed the algorithm again to where you get short videos recommended to you on your homepage. And it's a pretty nice mix now, which is good. It's good to have different avenues for people to be successful on YouTube because it helps improve the diversity of content, makes the content better overall because there's less, uh, less sameness. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is really great news. This is something that I'm going to take a look at as well as far as creating more animation in the future. And uh, to close out this stream, and again, I really want to thank uh, Turkey Tom, Emperor Lemon for doing this. You guys are amazing to listen to, and I definitely would love to have you guys uh, back in the future. Let me ask you this. Which kind of guests, before my final thing, which kind of guests would you guys be interested in talking with? I don't even mean who. I mean more of what is the mindset or what are some of the ideas? Like, whose brains do you guys want to pick? Well, I like content creators, you know. It's uh, it's hard going out in general society and trying to, like, talk to other people because, like, the nature of work is completely different. But I've always enjoyed talking to other content creators, whether it's YouTube video makers or uh, Twitch streamers simply because it's there's there's a lot of relatable aspects that I don't get from talking to just people with conventional jobs. So basically just anyone, anyone that like makes videos on YouTube, they're fine by me and I'd enjoy talking to them about the process. Excellent. And how about you, Tom? And Tom, before you answer, one person I wanted to do a video with uh, with you and them was this military veteran unfortunately he said no but his first name is also tom so i just oh. wanted to do a video <laughs> where you have like two toms uh one tom turkey tom and the other tom is this like a uh, military veteran who's been to iraq and all these different things just to kind of like talk talk about the differences out wow. i mean that's kind of like the original goal of break the rules where uh, Emperor Lemon, just so you know, like what exactly Break the Rules has been for a long time, where uh, episodes like this is more of an exception, is 
I wanted to bring in people who are absolutely different in what their mindset is and where they come from. A lot of it being like uh, a lot of it being anonymous people online on Twitter together with various people from think tanks, you know, professional people who are in government and uh, in various industries because there's a lot of shit talking that people do about how society is run, which is why I want to bring in people from that society into this conversation and pick whatever whatever problems, kind yeah. of like we're talking about today. I guess you can bring me on to talk to a boomer then. Maybe we can get their side of the story after I just yes. crashed all of them for an hour. Or maybe uh, um, Eric Finman, who's this uh, crypto uh, millionaire or billionaire. I don't know. I got. I want to get him on again. Who knows? Like, there's a lot of very interesting uh, younger people out there too, who are not the uh, boomers that were responsible for the situation we're in now. And uh, maybe there's something there's something to be said for things that they're doing right now. I know. I want to be very hopeful. I want to be hopeful that the generation I talked about before the World War One. Uh, pre-World War One generation can rise again in different ways and we can salvage a lot of these problems kind of from feeling the pressure we're in right now. But uh, before I go to Super Chats, uh, Turkey Tom, I did not let you finish what you were going to say as far as who you want to be on Break the Rules with. Um, I'd like to talk to some uh, some professionals um, who are not working on YouTube, people who have gone through the system that I left um, of going to like journalism school or... Um, like communications, basically stuff, and then actually got a job in the end. Oh, you faded there. Turkey Tom. I oh, oh, did I, did I fade? Um, no, you're back. Sorry, I'd like, to, I'd like to talk to them. I think I was facing away from the mic. Um, I'd like to talk to some people who are working in the traditional uh, media in industry, not YouTube. People who, are, who went to school for four years, got a bachelor's degree, and then were hired, um, whether they be video editors or producers or writers for... Uh, TV. I think you have some industry connections, Lab. I think it'd be cool to talk to some people who um, do that uh, uh, for a living and kind of contrast how their how their work is. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I could definitely see about that. So before we go to Super Chats, uh, last thing I wanted to say, what we were talking about before, and that more uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual thing, if I can try to pick my brain up together about this. And by the way, everybody who's listening to this, if you're enjoying Turkey Tom and Emperor Lemon, subscribe right now. There's going to be a lot more of these streams coming up. I believe on Thursday I'm going to have a very interesting stream. Alexander Bard is coming back in for that one, and we are going to have a uh, special uh, guest, never before, uh, Luke Smith. Luke Smith, I just got to get a final confirmation from the guy, but he should be coming in with Alexander Bard this uh, Thursday. But uh, anyway, with that being said, the spiritual thing that I wanted to get at here, where I was comparing East and West, saying that I think that with the West, they have this sense of getting into somewhere uh, that people have not been yet in terms of mind state. The problem that I have with the idea of just going back to this pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer mindset is there's a very interesting uh, book about the human mind. How It's by Julian James uh, called The Bicameral Mind in the Bronze Age about how he proposes that the mind was split in the sense that your right side would not really associate with your left side. So whatever was happening, people would interpret it as being the voice of the gods coming through. 
and it was in a way that people were not as conscious of themselves, their ego. They were much more conscious of everything that's going on around them but themselves. And you could say that that is a virtue, but a person's not really working on themselves. And how much does a person in that situation have this sense of self-awareness, have this sense of understanding of what's going on? Because it's one thing, I think, to, let's say, um, do something wrong and get beaten up uh, for doing something wrong, getting spanked, and then never doing it again because you don't want to get spanked versus not doing something wrong because you know inherently that this is wrong, that the other person's going to feel bad. What I'm basically getting to here is I think that there has been a transformation in terms of how people see themselves, in terms of understanding themselves as being a separate unit, not to say that we can't have this uh, sense of oneness again, but now we could possibly have this sense of oneness along with the understanding that we are also living, that we are also existing. Do you see what I mean? I hope I'm not being too fuzzy, but what I'm trying to get at here. I'd have to check out the literature on that, but if I'm gathering correctly, they're basically saying that uh, people are pretty much too much of an individual now or too much of individuals to sort of go back to a time of sort of more tribal living where you would care significantly about the needs of the people around you. Yes, but also I'm curious as far as whether the people who had those kind of cares understood those cares as much. How much was it just autopilot? Like, let's say a mother bear would protect her young or like a mother goose or whatever. You know, like there's just like these instincts, just these things firing as opposed to just having a much more, you know, a much deeper understanding of what exactly all of this is. I mean, I, I guess the way I understand it based on what little in the in the topic i have read is that individualism i I think it's largely a cultural thing where i I think if you place someone in an environment where certain strong tribal standards were reinforced and the word tribal now kind of gets used sort of derogatorily to refer to i guess partisan politics and behavior related to that but uh, the way I'm using it here is more so <clears throat> in terms of the um, pre-agrarian sense where, of uh, how human beings used to live in tribes of like 150 or less people. I feel like if whatever you like tele- teleport an infant from modern society and put it into one of those societies, I feel like they would still act as the a tribe member would be expected to we are all very conscious of how other people think of us it's been kind of twisted and corrupted a little bit by just marketing and forces that want to sell you something to make you feel like you are being valued by others and that you are contributing to something more than yourself but i think i think these certain psychological needs to be accepted not only accepted by others, but to feel like you yourself are contributing to sort of the greater harmony of the group of people around you. I feel like these are inexorable. 
like you cannot like if you were to take this away from people they would cease to be human um and, but what's the difference between sorry to interrupt but what's the difference between that harmony among humans and that harmony among a pack of wolves humans of course have a great degree of intelligence and they have a ability for cognition that for perhaps our modern understanding of i guess canine psychology it doesn't really indicate that um animals like wolves and even animals closer to humans like uh, chimpanzees are capable of reasoning or asking questions uh i will say you, you see what I'm trying to get at here. What I'm trying to get at is why do we have these functions? Either it's just all random happenstance or there's a reason for us to have these, which did take us out of this very natural environment and into what is, you know, this chaotic uh, mess. But I'm just trying to see maybe there is something that we have right now, this sense of individuality, that's actually a good thing. That's actually something that can lift us beyond where we are right now, the cycle we're stuck in right now. Well, the thing is that re regardless of what state uh, man ought to be, is that people are very adaptable. People in history have adapted to some of the cruelest conditions that mankind has ever known, really. And they weren't necessarily happy, but they can survive. Um, and I feel like reclaiming happiness is something that should probably be worked on more in modern life, but the, uh, it becomes a problem for a lot of people because the pathway to a lot of people being happy, it requires basically, um, not engaging with the most powerful institutions in the world that have been built up over just thousands of years of growth of civilization well, um, you, you know you are right that happiness would be able to be achieved by uh, us getting closer to and i know you're saying that this is not something that we can facilitate in a uh, like a big enough uh, group of people but like going back to that tribal lifestyle where we may differ is i don't think the point is happiness if you want happiness, then we already had happiness when we were living in a cave. And I agree with you there. But maybe that's not the goal. Maybe happiness is there. It's good. It's important. But maybe the goal is understanding. That's what I'm trying to figure out myself. Like beyond just living in such a way as to utilize your body and your mind correctly and, uh, you know, being chased by a wild beast or something like that. And, you know, then sitting around the campfire with your loved ones. That is great, but maybe there's something beyond that. that. That is a big conundrum. It's arguably the whole crux of just the conflict of the human experience where we do know more now. We know more about natural phenomena and processes that any of those people could have possibly envisioned. But uh, were we meant to live in a, uh, a state of omniscience, basically, where it, is it helping us to know? Obviously, it's it's considered uh, not not a positive attribute to be ignorant in modern society. But by and large, just looking out in public, the the, the people who we generally consider ignorant, they definitely seem a lot happier. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that ignorance is bliss. Right? It might be it might be anecdotal. I'm sure there's plenty of people 
who are like just engaged with politics that are happy, but you well, sure don't see to, seem to see a lot of them. Well, also a lot of people are on prescription medications right now. A majority of Americans are, and uh, I th- okay, there, there may be. There Is that may true? Be... Are a majority of Americans on prescription? Everybody I've talked to right now has been on some kind of prescription meds. I'm not on any prescription meds, but everybody I have talked to outside of like my family has been. So I don't know, like Tom, ask around, like how many of the Zoomers are on some kind of SSRI. I don't think a, a majority maybe exaggeration more than you would uh, more than is probably right I would say. It's a lot, probably it's more a, prescribed. A lot of like minor age people now whose like brains are still very much developing that are on like yeah. hard drugs and it's 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 very hard to think about uh it's very I will say on that uh on the subject of your whole question Lev I think um my personally I found that my own growth as a is a person my own uh like exp- the expansion of my brain, okay, my massive genius, mega mind. <laughs> Imagine the greatest drawing of a Wojak with the biggest, most, uh, most fertile, awesome brain, okay. Like that's the, the that's Wojak me. having sex with his own brain on top of his own brain, playing chess, right? That's that's the you know that's me right now. But yeah. I found that the way that I got there, okay, the way that I got to be so 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 omniscient and genius was through um like it you know it was it was during experiences where I wasn't necessarily trying to help myself experiences where I wasn't trying to be introspective intentionally. It just happened because um, I was around people or I was helping people with something. Um, and by that, I, I gained some greater insight. That's the whole, uh, that's the whole point of like stories, right? It's like uh, some, some outer conflict matches like your inner conflict. And as a result, like, you know, these come together and at the end uh, the hero learns something greater about themselves, right? Yes. Because of, because of what's going on. That's why we journey. enjoy those stories so much. That's why we enjoy those stories so much because yeah. our brain knows that that's based and it's 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 pilled. Okay, it's I mean, all the yeah. pills. And that's one of the that's one of the tough things about living in modern society because we have all these mechanisms and all these all this research explaining why people are depressed and the brain chemicals involved in making people depressed. But a lot of it comes down to just or I guess heuristics instinct just kind of just kind of how you feel about stuff which is just completely non-scientific and it's it's hard for us like we we can we can answer all this information but we can't make people not depressed you people can you can put people on medication and it works for some people you can put people on therapy and it works for some people but it doesn't work for a lot of people and yeah. that, that's what's kind of so frustrating about just the burden of knowledge. Great. We know all this stuff. And yes, we have scientific marvels that people a thousand year, years ago would have thought that we were living in godlike, just complete uh, euphoria over it. But yeah. hmm. with, even with all of our stuff, all of our breakthroughs, all of our knowledge, it's just, I mean, I, these days are just miserable and it, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to deal with it's like we seemingly can't help them i personally uh i i don't i've never been diagnosed with any any mental illness but also because i don't i don't place a great um a great uh i don't know, importance on diagnosis because basically diagnosis is you go to a doctor and tell them you're sad and they say you have depression that's what that is but i am someone who who struggles with you know that that loneliness that empty coldness of the world okay 
I feel it come creeping on me every moment. All right. I'm like, I'm like Spider-Man and Spider-Man three venom is constantly trying to take me over. He's trying to make me do evil things. He wants me to listen to slipknot. He wants me to listen to my chemical romance all day on repeat. Okay. That being said, I have found that personally the most fulfilling thing for me, which seems like an intuitive answer. And it seems cliche to say has been actively making a choice to hang out with people, to have experiences um, to do things, and that has been the the greatest thing in staving you know staving off the cold of this world. And I think more people need to be more focused on that, on having experiences, on meeting people, on uh, gaining a greater knowledge of the world, um, uh, rather than simply um, you know thinking about themselves, thinking about their own mental state, and thinking about materialism. I think that uh, those things are harmful to your mental state. But I think that if you do spend your time focusing on experiences, on knowledge, on art, on gaining gaining, gaining power in that way, okay, increasing your secret power level, and I mean this unironically, even though I'm saying it in an ironic, meta, in a meta-ironic way, okay, as Idubs would say, I think if you spend more time doing that, the other things that you were seeking the whole time, like money, like the new Mustang, okay, like the new BMW, 340i okay uh which uh, has some very nice features including you know when you pull into a parking spot it will it will make sure that you don't hit the other cars beside you so you don't scratch your new beamer uh if you spend your time on things uh you know other than you know purely money or whatever those things will come naturally and i think that's what more people need to be focused on you know it's not uh, it's not also literal um if you spend your time doing fulfilling things uh, i think eventually the money and the other stuff that you want will come to you anyway um, so, yeah, there is also, I think, and by the way, Turkey time, I completely agree with what you're saying. There's one thing I want to add to that before we uh, get to the super chats. Emperor Lemon, I almost agree with what you're saying. The difference I think is, I don't think that a lot of the people you mention who have all this knowledge actually have the knowledge. What they have is a lot of facts they memorized and a lot of ways to access those facts on their phone or even by reading a book. I don't think that a lot of people who are educated are necessarily smart. People can be very educated. People can be overeducated. You know, they can learn a lot of different things uh, that they then uh, keep in their brain or somewhere on a tablet. But wisdom, which takes, I think, a longer time, as well as maybe some people are born, you know, with uh, more of that ability to gain wisdom. But wisdom is something that I think differentiates us uh, you know, as far as not not us three, I'm not, I mean, look, I'm an idiot, both of you guys are very smart, and uh, the point that I'm getting to here is that I think that there is something to be said for gaining the kind of wisdom where you don't really need to learn a lot of these different facts, but you have an overarching sense of an intuitive sense of what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And that is something that if people have more of, I think it's going to be a lot, a lot more satisfying to live. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to either just applying the knowledge itself. And that's a skill not everyone's going to have. Not everyone's meant to be the great philosopher of our age, even though if you look on Twitter, a lot of people certainly think that way. But there's, a, there's something to be said about... I guess what Tom was saying, where there there are these certain universalities. I think I mentioned them in like reading the Tao. People 2,500 years ago, people today, hunter-gatherers today that are studied, but they're using the 
societal framework from 10,000 years ago. There are these certain universal things that make us happy. And I'm not going to sit here that it's like a guarantee where, oh, if you just go out and make some friends, you'll be happy. It, it's more complicated than that. I understand. But it's. I think it's important to acknowledge nowadays to not just sort of fall in to that hole where we have autonomy in our lives. It might not be a lot, but we have it. We have a little bit of it. I mean, know? antidepressants in themselves—they're not—they're not designed to um to make you happy. They're designed to make you able to function so that you can go to work, yeah, they're right? So that you can go to a nine to five and slave away. Uh, so they're, they're I, designed I to that... chemically just simulate the brain chemistry right. of a healthy person, but it's not a long-term solution. No, it is not. Cigarettes are, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to try to be Mister Therapy, Mister BetterHelp over here, Doctor Phil, and not bring you something. But I, I, I just will say that there are certain things that we know, and at least you can know on a personal level that make you happy. And if you want to prioritize your happiness, which sadly a lot of people don't seem to want to do, if you want to prioritize it, though, you can position yourself. And cut out certain things in your lives that do not make you happy. I mean, when it when it comes to depression, I mean, like the real question should be why aren't more people depressed? If you're waking up every day to do a job you don't like, to you know, hang around people you aren't particularly interested in, making money to to what end, right? So you can exist and then fucking die with nothing. Like, <laughs> if that's your life, why wouldn't you want to kill yourself? Um, so, I mean, I think the real, the real, the real thing that most people need to do is reevaluate their whole yeah. life. It's rough. It's like, I said, like I said earlier, people will adapt to awful situations to survive. Mm. They will be miserable, but they will survive. Could people adapt to turning into animals? Yeah. I mean, I think if the circumstances were so that I guess just modern industrial, technology were destroyed a subset of people would be content with going out and just living in the woods and farming or basic that's, substance that, that's not what i mean i mean really? like actual animals like imagine evolution but in reverse <laughs> uh, so like idiotic. i don't know what that question even means no, 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 this is secretly brilliant. Like when I was saying uh, I'm an idiot before, that was a lie. I'm actually very, very I mean, smart. I agree with that. That is a so, lie. You're not an idiot. You're a very intelligent, large-brained. Uh, no, there is, there, is something, there is something that's going on, which either it's complete. Uh, here we go. Here's a spam. Either it's something that's complete idiocy, but since you guys are very smart, I'm going to throw it out at you, okay? Either it's complete idiocy or it's going to be the revolution to end all revolutions of our, our understanding of who we are. What if, all right, and I understand archaeological evidence, archaeological evidence. I don't care anymore. I don't give a shit. Uh, what, what if the humans came first and then came the monkeys? What if monkeys are a deformed human being? Um, well, that's tough to think about. It's just like putting time in reverse, basically. I don't even know if uh, animals are capable of comprehending happiness. I I don't know. Well, if, if you can imagine it working one way, why couldn't it work the other way? Um, I, I don't know. It's just very hard for me 
to visualize. I know it's like a whole different mindset. Like there'd imagine, like, I don't know if there'd be like any natural. I, I guess uh, like H.G. Wells, the Time Machine, talks about like humans splitting into like a super smart and a super brutish group of people. So maybe that's that's one way what you're kind of getting at. I mean, also what was that all... group of cave things? The troglodytes? Right? No, it was them? the Morlocks. Morlocks. I'm thinking of the guys that lived inside of caves that they oh. say like went extinct or something, and they were some kind of a. Uh... It's like a, it's like a it's like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what those are. But another thing about like all the world religions, none of the world religions, including the Easter ones, have anything of uh, to do with evolution as far as apes became man. In fact, some of them have it the other way around, where human beings started dwelling in the trees. So it's an interesting way of thinking about life because here is another really weird thing. Have you guys heard of Rudolf Steiner? I have not. All right, Rudolf Steiner, he is, you could say, a more hippy-dippy-ish kind of character further away from anything that I would say is very, uh, you know, very grounded into our materialistic uh, mindset today. But he was a very interesting guy. He was uh, around the Theosophist, and then he started his own uh, group. And his idea of what the human being is, is that the human being, like I said before, we are an aspect of God. But also, we are thought made flesh. We are an idea that materialized into solidity. Even though, again, when it comes to quantum physics, like, who the hell knows, like, how solid a lot of this is, you know, waves, vibrations, man, you know, all that stuff. So the point that I'm getting to here is that his idea is that humanity ended up solidifying into this state that we're in right now. But if we, let's say... Uh, imagine things a little bit differently as far as evolution goes where we don't deny natural selection like you said before people adapt what if people can adapt so well that they could adapt not only to the chimpanzees and to the gorillas but they can also adapt to all of the vertebrates that we have look around the birds the bats the fish Imagine these were all human beings, and then imagine there was a giant cataclysm 11,000 years ago that ended up wiping out a whole bunch of civilizations, and then imagine this cataclysm occurs regularly, like in intervals of like every 20-something thousand years, and we just have to start over, but then those who are not able to start over, they adapt to the environment that they're in, and eventually they lose cognition they lose the ability to think the way that we are thinking right now. And the only thing that they have left is to survive. If you die, you die. If you survive, you survive. But you have to now adapt to whatever condition you're in. But you still keep your spinal cord. You still keep, like, your bones. But they start morphing around. You know, your jaw gets different. Your hands get different. Your, you know, you start to morph around based on, uh, you know, based on whichever offspring ends up surviving in the environment you're in. That is what I would propose to you, my crazy-ass idea of the in, in, inverse evolu involution. That's what I would call it. What do you think so, of that? How do you well, like maybe, them apples? I, I guess you kind of already see people um, sort of developing physiologically in the ways that are probably not conducive to survival in a traditional sense. Obviously, there's a ton of obesity now from just modern-day sedentary lifestyle. And uh, when I go on Twitter, people certainly act like animals there. <laughs> Maybe you have a point. Where... Well, there are there are cases of uh, people who end up living in the wild, like they just naturally adapt to like behave like animals, right? Like, I'm sure that over like a hundred, you know, two hundred, three hundred years, yeah, however long evolution like, takes, we turn into some kind of beast. 
that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, like you have in the in the Mahabharata writings about one of the main antagonists uh, having his own airport in what is today Sri Lanka. And this is like supposed to be thousands and thousands of years old. So again, I don't want to go full like ancient aliens on you, but I do think that there are certain things that may have existed back then that we completely forgot about. And we are like Graham Hancock says a species with amnesia. All I'm doing right now is seeing how far this can be uh, extended. Like what are like if we take at face value a lot of these ideas that people had of these giants, the Nephilim, you know, coming, you know, the, the angels coming down to the earth and copulating with the earth women and creating giants. Like a lot of this sounds like fantasy, but there are like certain giant skeletons out there that people end up discovering. And who knows? The point is, is that I want to I think this is the way out. OK, I know this has been a very blackpilling stream. I think this is the way out. I have this sense of wanting to discover whatever realms happen to be close to us right now. And I want to bring a bunch of very intelligent people to discover these realms with me to figure out what exactly this is about. Why exactly are we here? What can we do with the abilities that we have to think, to process information, to gain certain insights? And what exactly did happen in the past? I want to discover it all. So that is the other thing that Break the Rules is going to be doing for those who are tuning in right now. And yes, on to the Super Chats, unless you guys have anything else you want to say about that. <laughs> I think the only way to break the rules and be happy uh, as, a young, as a young teenager is to do Adderall, smoke Newports, drink Monster <laughs> Energy, spend all of your time playing Counter-Strike, uh, only surf maps, and do nothing else for six years straight, and at the end, you will reach happiness. So that's that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I guess my, my quick fix for happiness is to uh, log off Twitter and to uh, just stop buying products. Yes. Smart yes. man. All right, on to the Super Chats. And we have a big one to start us off from Vicious Canid. $20. Emp. Would you ever do a video on progressive rock? I know you put a lot of progressive rock in your videos, ELP, Soft Machine, etc. What got you into progressive rock in the first place? Glad to know someone else my age enjoys it. Well, I, I just started listening to it probably around 2015, 2016 when I was at the tail end of uh, high school. It just uh, browsing music on YouTube, just going and looking at different popular songs that I'd heard the names of but never listened to. And I ended up really, uh, really engaging with the genre. In terms of an actual video, it's always just so hard to work with actual music on YouTube. I don't see myself doing it anytime soon. I do, of course, uh, for those who are uh, learning about it, I have a new website now called DNN, or downward.news is the URL, where I'm trying to do more uh, independent written content. And if I ever do stuff with music, it's probably going to have to go there because even just like playing more than five seconds of a song in a YouTube video, that's going to make it completely unmonetizable. And I'm, I'm at a point where I have enough uh, financial dependencies where that's not an option for me right now. And that, that those consequences are let alone to it getting blocked and uh, a bunch of other problems and complications. It's just YouTube is just right now is too hostile towards working with music. It's gotten better. I will say that, but they need to instill a whitelisting system where you can 
pay to license a song through YouTube and not have that video taken down. Once they put that in, I definitely do want to cover a lot more musical topics because there's a lot of um, artists. I think their story deserves to be told, but just the way YouTube is administered, it's not like movies or TV shows where you can play a bit of the clip and not worry about the video getting taken down. Music is the single most harshly patrolled thing on YouTube. And the way it stands now, I just could not conceivably make a video about it. Mm. Well, hopefully yeah, that's a that's a super frustrating thing because I uh, I want to do a video about one of the most hated bands of all time. OK, Nickelback. <laughs> Unfortunately, if I was to ever do a video about them using their music, I would probably end up being like uh, personally visited by uh, whoever their record label is like UMG to my house. And they would put me in shackles and put me in like indentured servitude for the rest of my life for using even <laughs> even one smidge of their music. because You just can't do that on YouTube. And that's only going to get worse, I think, as well, mm. um, unfortunately. My uh, ex-girlfriend, who was from uh, Beijing originally, she was a big Nickelback fan. She tried Let's to... Let's go! Uh, she tried to show me, you know, how they're actually, like, a really, really good band, and she showed me a music video on the iPad. And look, back then, you know, I was, uh, I was very enamorous, so I agree with her. Nickelback's great. Anyway. Yes. Uh, Be okay, Baron Julius von Brunk. $2, top 10 anime crossovers. Uh, next one over here, we have Vicious Canid, another one, $5. Also, EMP, how did you enjoy the Dali Museum in my neck of the woods? I saw your footage at the end of the Mac Tonight vid. Oh, well, the Dali Museum was just incredible. It's pricey to get in, but it's absolutely worth the price of admission. If you have like any doubt over the fact that like a person can be an artistic genius, look no further than to go to the Dolly Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, just admire the art. It's uh, I, I had a I had like an ethereal experience where I don't know if it's in my head. Obviously, there can be contrarian naysayers, but it was just like looking at the purity of beauty like watching the uh, the product of this man and his work it can uh i think it can only be uh we we can only wish to strive for just the level, the level of creative genius that this man had achieved mm. it's a uh, truly a truly an experience i would recommend to anyone but I think Dali would have been nowhere he would have been sitting on his ass if not for his wife his russian wife gala she did everything for the man as far as promoting his work, bringing it out there. And that's another unfortunate Cash-22 where you have some artists who don't really know how to promote themselves and end up being just stuck somewhere until they die and then their work is discovered later on. So they need to find their own you know, spouses to uh, you know, kind of like get them, get them out of the muck and just focus them like some weapon on, okay, do this, do that, do this, do that. Some people need that. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to catch a break. Um, there, there's very creative people in history that have just not been able to capitalize off of it, unfortunately, because they've been either self-destructive or they haven't had the uh, support system around them to really just foster that, uh, that artistic brilliance. 
Well, that's why I'm happy that there seems to be a support system of some sort on uh, YouTube, at least, as the content creators go, the various, like the commentary community and uh, what you guys are doing. I think that this is this is very good. I'm happy that you guys are around. I'm happy that you guys do what you do. And I hope that you're going to keep growing. I hope someday we're going to have a cartoon called uh, Tom Wing Duck, which would be no Tom Darkwing Duck which would no, be a parody of no, Darkwing no. Duck and Tom Dark. But it's not going to be a duck. It's going to be a turkey. Tom so Dark Tom... will die. I'm going to sing in a metalcore band. <laughs> I'm moving to Ocala, Florida. I'm giving it all up. I'm going to sing in metalcore bands. That's going to be my peak, all right? No more. Yeah. No more YouTube. Well, if you I'm move out. to Florida, we can uh, stream together. I always yes. show up on other people's streams, but I cannot stream. I have, I have, I have no idea of Florida's geography, but I, got, I have to go to Ocala. It's very right? flat. It's very warm. Okay, I mean, exactly. like things, things relative to where they are. Yeah, Ocala is pretty decent place to live. You're pretty close, not too far from Orlando, but driving through Orlando itself is not very fun. I see. I have to, I have to go to Ocala because one of my favorite bands, A Day to Remember, is from Ocala, and I got to go there. I got to go to their houses and ask them to be my friend. So that's the plan, basically, to go harass my favorite artists um, and ask them for mentorship, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Sweet. All right. And with that, thank you guys so much for watching. Be sure to subscribe. And also, if you want to help out the show, patreon.com slash break the rules. Become a patron today. Uh, there's a lot of great things in it for you. If you like wooden magnets, my father, Alexander, creates these very beautiful wooden magnets. If you become a $20 tier patron, you are going to get a random magnet. If you become a 50 tier patron, you are going to get a custom magnet. Whatever design you want, it shall be yours. And once again, that is patreon.com slash break the rules. So anyway, guys, thank you so much for watching.